0: Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the February 6th, 2021 edition of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. Today we'll be uh, doing part three of our discussion of chapter four of Du Bois' Russia and America. And as always uh, with this discussion series, the link to the PDF of Russia and America is in the description uh, for this live stream. Today, I'm joined by uh, Meghna, Serafina, Emily, Michelle, joining us from Illinois for the first time, is Purba, and as always, uh, Dr. Anthony Montero. And so uh, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Montero to give a bit of an introduction to some of the concepts which will be discussed in today's reading.
1: Thank you very much, Joe, and good morning to everybody. Uh, just so people will know, you know, I give people nicknames and so Jahan, I have uh, reduced to Joe. Uh, a famous rapper, <laughs> you yeah. uh, know. But anyway, uh, thank you, Joe, and good morning to everybody. There's some concepts I just want to go over quickly that Du Bois uses. You might recall, and and they these concepts will reappear today. He uses the concept the dictatorship of the proletariat, and he says this is a form of state power of the working class that establishes the conditions for working class democracy. Uh, Clearly, uh, most people educated in the West uh, and who are like ourselves are inundated with uh, bourgeois uh, liberal concepts of democracy, the very word dictatorship seems to connote, pardon me, denote the opposite of democracy. But if you recall in the text, Du Bois uses them as overlapping, uh, intersecting concepts. Uh, to understand what he's saying, you have to understand the Marxist and, in particular, Lenin's uh, notion of the state. The state is um, fundamental to social order and social stability. That's in all theories of the state. Uh, The state is the institution, in fact, the only institution that has the authority to use coercive and violent force. No other institution or group or individuals or institutions have that right. Now, In revolutionary conditions, revolutionary forces who claim the state is illegitimate can uh, take up arms and use force to overthrow the state. But in the framework, let us say of liberal bourgeois theory that type of action is treasonous, seditious, and can be punishable by death. So that's the state. That is, there's a long history at least in Western political theory of defining the state, the definition of democracy or the practice of democracy or the establishment of the legal conditions that people will live under let us say under a constitution. Those forms, those institutions and so on, come only after the state has been established and secured. Now, what Marxists have said is that the state is always a dictatorship of one class over another. So in bourgeois or capitalist societies, the state is a dictatorship of the capitalist class. You could say the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. It cannot be challenged except if one is prepared to carry out a revolution and uh, therefore uh, take up arms or other means to overthrow the state, which is considered an act of treason, an act of sedition. We hear that language uh, quite a bit these days as it applies to what happened on January 6th. Uh, Just parenthetically, most of the discussion about that as seditious or treasonous or an attempt to take over the state is completely exaggerated. Those people had no intention to do that. In fact, they were not organized to do that. There was no leadership to carry that out or anything. But it's a way of setting them up uh, as seditious, treasonous groups in order to suppress them, imprison them. We'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. Now, With the Russian Revolution, the revolutionary forces in the name of the working class and the peasants established what the, uh, Lenin and his followers called the dictatorship of the proletariat, the dictatorship of working people. And they said that this would be a brief period, in the history of socialism in the Soviet Union, uh, it lasted much longer because the threats to this new society and to this new state continued to exist through and even after World War II. And we could talk about that. Du Bois talks about the Civil War, he talks about the threats of the Western nations to invade them uh, in the late 1920s and then of course Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union in World War II. Uh, But if we look at other revolutions, the French Revolution established the dictatorship of the bourgeois class. There was a a prolonged drawn out struggle before that was consolidated. Uh, The dictatorship of the proletariat in the Soviet Union was established far quicker than in the, the dictatorship of the capitalist class was in France. The Haitian Revolution established the dictatorship of an alliance of class and social forces. First and foremost, the enslaved Africans, but also mixed race people of. Uh, even some landowners. So it looked more like a dictatorship, a democratic dictatorship of all of the forces that had been colonized and oppressed by the French colonialists. Uh, now while theorists of the dictatorship of the proletariat say that this is only a brief period in the history of revolutionary Uh, uh, struggles. In the Soviet Union, it lasted for maybe 50 years, and there were many debates about how to go from the dictatorship of the proletariat to the dictatorship of the whole people. In other words, where class conflict no longer exists, there is no longer the need for one class to establish its supremacy over another class. And so the whole people are now the state. China, I theorize has gone over to the dictatorship of the whole people. Uh, And we might also call it another way to talk about that kind of dictatorship of the whole people is the civilizational state, the civilization. And we can get more into that at another time. Uh, Cuba has gone over to the dictatorship of the whole people. North Korea, similarly. Uh, And so the life world, the political life world of those societies at this moment are very different than the situation, let us say, throughout the 1950s, even in the 1960s and 70s in China, very different than what it was, what the political situation was in North Korea or the uh, uh, the Democratic Korean peoples. um, uh, I think that's the the official name of the country. And and so it is in Cuba. So these societies under the dictatorship of the whole people or under the civilizational state are far more democratic, far freer in spite of all the Western propaganda than is the United States or most Western countries. Uh, Because it is not a formal democracy it is a democracy in substance. Uh, just one last concept, world historic. This is, this is a concept deeply embedded in Du Bois's thinking. Uh, it comes from Hegel. World historic are events, like a revolution, uh, for example. Uh, or the consolidation of state power, so much so that uh, a society can move to the civilization state or to the state of the whole people. These are world historic events. In other words, they not only reflect a different uh, world reality, but they change the world in fundamental ways. That is why China and Asia are so important to be looked at and studied at this time because I would argue we are looking at world historic transformations a what we call an axial shift axial from the word axis a change in the axis of world human civilization uh, et etc so I'll end there, those are just something. Uh, Oh, by the way, Du Bois uses the concept dictatorship of the proletariat in black reconstruction. Uh, One of the things that scares scholars and liberals and um, I guess other scared people, I don't know, is (laughs) I can't figure it out. Uh, Well, that's one reason. You know, people read, like when they read um, Black Reconstruction, they read up to like chapter five and then they throw up their hands. No, I can't go any further because then it gets a little deep. Uh, And he uses, there are three chapters, one on South Carolina, Mississippi, and Louisiana, states that had Black majorities. And he theorized the possibility of the establishment in those states of the dictatorship of the black proletariat as a form of the deepening of democracy. And so when Du Bois talks about the dictatorship of the proletariat in Russia, he's talking about, well, you know, he always talks about this great experiment. He's talking about an experiment in democracy. And he will sometimes use this phrase, the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat. And suggesting that the dictatorship of the proletariat at times could be less democratic, could be more democratic. And as it gets to the edge of a, of a more widening democracy, it, 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 it's, it's on the edge of entering the dictatorship of the entire people. Uh, just I could just say one last thing. Uh, we were talking about India, uh, or South Asia, really. I mean, I, it's, it, it becomes less and less productive to talk about India separate from Bangladesh, from Pakistan, uh, and other South Asian societies, even Burma or uh, Myanmar. Uh, Is it possible for India to not go through the dictatorship of the proletariat or South Asia, I'm sorry, but move quickly to the civilization state or the state of the whole people? And the reason we have to consider this because unlike China, more or less one language, 4,000 years of the single state, and all of that, centralized state that is, South Asia has a history of being um, uh, uh, not centralized, but more federal and a thousand languages and, and so much, multiple religions, etc., that it might have to go in terms of a transition from the type of non-functioning state that exists in most Asian and African countries, and especially in India, that state cannot exist. It does not work. It's an imitation often of the worst characteristics of bourgeois democracy, of Western liberalism. It doesn't work. So is it possible that in South Asia, a multi civilization state of the whole people could begin to be thought of and implemented. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you
0: Yes you've uh, laid down a lot of important points which will uh, which are very important for this chapter the remainder of this chapter, which focuses heavily on civilization and the possibilities of socialism in Asia in particular. Um, I just wanted to say also that I, I think this point about the state is very important and it's been a great weakness of progressive thought today that there's not a proper understanding of the state. Many of these advances made by Lenin and others, not to speak of Du Bois, have been uh, lost in our current moment and uh, this uh, this is very important what you said about the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and uh, because like you said, this is something very alien to the kind of liberal education which we receive. I actually had an interesting experience, personal experience in teaching an undergrad class uh, while I was a teaching assistant and the class is on democracy. And it's, a, I mean, it has a very Eurocentric and kind of class uh, about how democracy was invented in ancient Rome, the rest of the world never had democracy, et cetera. But then we had the, we had a section on China and we actually had to read the constitution of the people's republic of china which i highly recommend everyone should read it's a it's a very interesting read the current constitution and uh my students were at first they were just like it starts actually by talking about china the democratic dictatorship you know um, i think it's i forgot if it says of the whole people or of the working class and peasantry but anyway very interesting and just this point about democratic dictatorship everybody all the students were kind of laughing it off. All the non-Chinese students, I should say. Right. Laughing it off.
1: (laughs) Of course.
0: (laughs) But then when I started to explain like, oh wait, we have to understand what does this mean? What was Marx thinking about when he said democratic dictatorship? Democracy for whom? Dictatorship for for whom? Like a democracy like the United States, for whom is it a democracy? Probably for Jeff Bezos, for Bill Gates, and very democratic for them. For whom is it a dictatorship? For people on Broad and Erie, for people in Butler, Pennsylvania, for them, it often feels like a dictatorship. And so if you could reverse it, if you could create a situation where it's a dictatorship for those people, for the people in Broad and Erie, the people in Butler, Pennsylvania, and uh, a dictatorship in which they could enforce their will on the uh, elite, I mean, that would be something really democratic. And I think that's part of what Du Bois is going to get to in this uh, chapter. And The fact that we don't have this uh, strong understanding of the state is what allows all this Democratic Party confusion, the squad, you know, the fact that they're trying to claim that the people who protested at the Capitol and who went inside were, you know, doing sedition or the new thing is insurrectionists, which is a legal term in the 14th Amendment. Um, I mean, all of this stuff stems from, I think, confusion about the state and the meaning of uh, democracy. So I just wanted to to add that, can
1: I just say one last thing, if you don't mind, Joe? Um, the party state, what we call, is called the party state or the one party democracy. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Uh, in many ways, in countries like Cuba, in China, uh, in the former Soviet Union, um, the and this is what Du Bois talks about uh, a bit, the communist party or as in North Korea, the workers party uh, is organized as in a certain sense, the tribune of the people in war, in labor, in social commitment, the communists are obligated by morality and tradition to make the greatest sacrifice. In a war, for example, in World War II, uh, it was the communists who went to the front to be the first ones to die, to be the first ones to be um, uh, sacrificed, to be the first martyrs, if you will. The same thing in Cuba. In North Korea, when the United and Korea it was the communist that went, now you say, well, oh, I know a communist that was stealing. Okay, a communist or two, you know, but the traditions of communist parties, uh, especially communist parties in nations where, where you have the dictatorship of the proletariat, the dictatorship of the whole people, communists are bound by morality and tradition to be the best fighters for the future of the country. Of course, and this is my last point, all of the propaganda in the West, and it's ceaseless, it never ends. You know, uh, it never ends, <laughs> uh, is against the communist because if you break the leadership, if you divide the leadership, uh, what what becomes of the people? I mean, we see it in the labor movement in this country. Doesn't have any leadership, you know? And therefore its rights shrink. It does not have a class perspective. You know, when I say class, not just your factory or your industry, but a class perspective. And you see what happens. In a country like the Soviet Union, yeah, everybody, you know, kind of bargain in their own industry, in their own factory, in their own office. But there had to be a group, a vanguard, who could impart to the people working in the steel industry what was happening to the peasants in the urals or the oil workers in the Caucasus to give a class, a holistic understanding and that is the theory upon which they operated. Is it Western and liberal? No. Does Western liberal concepts work for the poor, for the oppressed? Well, I think if you look at the polling numbers where 83% of the American public says that the government does not stand up for their interests, I think that you, you have the answer already. So, yeah, so these are opposites, and Du Bois is saying, you know, trying to establish a discussion. Uh, I say this to, to Michelle, almost a Socratic, Platonic discourse with the American people about this nation, which is being defined by the American elite as the mortal threat and the great evil. Uh, And Du Bois is saying, let's look at what they're doing. uh, And if we understand that, we can prevent nuclear war.
2: Well, the other thing I was just gonna say is that um, all these national liberation struggles, a lot of the leaders, they were drawing on these older civilizational traditions, like how Ho Chi Minh, uh, how he lived like, basically like a monk you know and he lived with so in such an austere life he left so little behind him and that's really a big part of the communist tradition of you know you make the sacrifices that you know you like you do it first you know you show that you you are you you embody it um and yeah i mean it makes sense that it happened in all these countries where you have these traditions of asceticism and you know, of, of spirituality and of you know putting the the collective before the self and sacrificing for the collective.
1: Poetry.
2: Poetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I
1: mean, all, all of these people are poets as well. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The search for the beloved, you know, you see in all these um, yeah. these, you know, uh, poems, these medieval poems, these ancient at, at poems. Attempt to
1: touch the souls of the yeah. masses.
0: The souls of black folk, the souls of India. Well, uh, anyone else want to come in before we get to the actual reading? If not, shall we start with the text? Michelle, are you?
1: Yeah,
3: I can read. Are we starting on page 125?
0: Yeah, I think we left off in the middle of 125. Did you want to do share screen again?
3: Yeah, I think I could do that.
0: I made you co host.
3: Cool. I'll just get that set
0: up. With today's uh, discussion, hopefully, we'll be uh, completing uh, chapter four. So be ready to move on to the next chapter. But this remainder of this chapter has a lot on, uh, as we were saying, about these questions civilization, socialism. Okay.
3: Can you guys see my screen?
0: Yeah, I think you had uh uh you should start where it says uh, we were nearing Mongolia I think that's where we left off last time we had finished the part about religion in the soviet union
3: Okay Okay I'm starting from page 125 we were nearing Mongolia and already in the province of the Buryats. The slim furs stood sturdily with straight heads and shoulders sagging with snow. The lonely silence of a Siberian night was about us. We climbed down a pass in the Black Mountains, following a river half hidden in ice. Suddenly the tempo of the scene changed. A large new factory blazed up in the night. Great piles of lumber lined the river bank. An electric road showed a beginning of modern roadmaking. Tracks of rails stretched wide on either side until a modern railway yard was evident. Then we swept into Verudinsk, now newly named, and the world was soldiers. They filled the depot, covered the platform, crowded a standing train, and marched about it in overcoats to their heels, buttoned closely, some with guns, some with bundles. All was now clear. This was a frontier point of concentration against the threat of Japan. It brought me back to this horrible waste of war in 1936. All Europe, all of Asia was in arms, as if Russia did not have a task big enough and well worth at least the respectful waiting of the world without having to arm herself against mankind. The only hope of human unity today lies in the common cause, the common interest of the working classes in Europe, Africa, and in Asia. This is why in the custom house of Otpur, the last outpost of Russia stood the motto in all languages, quote, workers of the world unite. Yet in the face of world militarism and new nationalism, Russia intent on her, her internal tasks must put down Trotskyism with ruthless hand, lest the armed world smash in blood the hopeful beginnings of a state seeking to replace private profit with public welfare. All this was true, yet as I looked out of the window at soldiers, arms, factories, all for war preparation, I felt the earth beneath my feet, smoldering and quaking with the flames of coming war. I could not believe it. I would not, but I felt the hidden flame. The problem of Orientals in the United States had interested me from my youth because they were colored people and therefore a part of the question of the color line. In high school and college, I had followed the restrictions on the Chinese in California and the Federal Exclusion Acts. The Sino-Japanese War perplexed me. Our remission of the boxer indemnity pleased me, as I contrasted this with the humiliation with Germany imposed on China. I was really uplifted by the Japanese defeat of Russia in 1904 and saw in this event the beginning of the overthrow of white supremacy. Then came the consequent increase of Japanese migration to the United States and the anti-Japanese movement in the West. The quote gentlemen's agreement of 1907 followed and Theodore Roosevelt's fight for Japanese right to hold land and attend unsegregated schools. In 1913 California forbade Japanese land ownership. Later I realized in visiting the West how Japanese hard work and competition in market gardening and their clannish organization for distributing their vegetables direct to customers had aroused the economic rivalry of business interests and determined them to stop competition by law. I began to look upon the Japanese as leaders of the world fight against white imperialism. Especially was I encouraged in this idea by her unsuccessful attempt to force a declaration of racial equality through the League of Nations in 1919. The effort of Europe to limit her navy in 1922 confirmed my thought. I even interpreted her pressure on China as an indirect attack on European imperialism in Asia. About 1930, I made the acquaintance of a young Japanese student who may have had official connections with his government, although this I never knew. We did talk much about Japan and he urged me to visit his country. When I went to Russia and Germany in 1936, I arranged through him to come home by way of Japan. He gave me advice and letters of introduction, which proved of great value. Thus, after my visit to the Soviet Union in 1936, I returned home through Manchuria with brief visits to China and Japan, For next to Russia, Japan intrigued me as holding the destiny of the darker world in its hands, the darker work in its hands. And who has not dreamed of China? 10,000 miles east of our east lies a land, lonely and dust-swept, pregnant with history in the dim past. Hence came the Mongol hordes that swept from Asia to France and Italy and changed the history of the modern world. Brown men, they were yellow and yellow with broad faces and flat noses and wild straight black hair They are here about me today November 1936, perhaps 25 million of them in Inner and Outer Mongolia and in Manchuria. Inner Mongolia is Chinese, Outer Mongolia is under Russian influence, Manchuria is Japanese. This makes a border filled with signs of war watched eagerly by the rest of the world. We could see the thicker concentration of troops on the Russian side as we approached Japan. The Soviets have stretched their military power thin in the vast sweep of land between the Volga and Baikal and concentrated it here in the east. The approaching of this fatal border in the night was eerie. Between three and four o'clock in the morning of November 12th, the porter knocked on my door and said, At par chas. I piled out as the train crept on slowly into the darkness, in the darkness. We stopped at a dark little station in the bitter morning cold and all of our luggage was taken by porters. Here it was examined minutely by Russian customs officers. They were courteous but but thorough, handing each piece of paper and inquiring about money. Then again, the porters took our bags and put them back on the same train. All of the Russian porters, waiters and officials silently disappeared. We were like a ghost train moving quietly and slowly into another land. We were in Manchuria. Passports came in the rather peremptory call in the dim light. Again, we climbed down at 6.30 in the morning, still before breakfast. Again, Porter shouldered our bags and we were before another set of inspectors. I was rather warily waiting, watching the struggle of an English lady with a rather rough inspector, who must up her bags and fingered the negatives of some films, when suddenly I heard a voice beside me, is this Mr. Du Bois? I looked around a bit suspiciously and admitted the accusation. A <laughs> dapper gold-faced young man in uniform stood beside me bowing, I have, he said politely, a first-class pass for you over the sta- <sniffs> state railways of Manchuria and some letters of introduction. Will you please meet this, the station master? I nearly passed out. Remember, this was before breakfast on a bitter cold morning and after two custom inspections and almost no sleep. The only courtesy I ever received from a railroad was the privilege of buying at top prices, something that nobody else wanted. And here I was 10,000 miles from home being offered a free pass in a first class carriage and lest I have to rest in a common waiting room, I was ushered into the station master's private parlor, where I reposed on plush. (laughs) The English lady came near, being sent back to Siberia for resenting the gruffness of the customs inspector. For heaven's sake, don't leave me, she pleaded, turning to me. (laughs) I walked in Manchuli after breakfast, waiting for the afternoon train. It was a staggering town on a dusty plain with Russian and Chinese signs. A Chinese lady drove past in a Russian uh, drosk in brilliant kimono and black and high-piled hair. Another passed on the street in a coat of many colors. A dark old Mongol with his two wives bargained for a ride. School children looking like Christmas dolls straggled by. It was a new world. My color was nothing unusual. All the world was sallow, yellow or brown, except the often blonde white Russian girls who waited table in the restaurants and on the dining car. The train swung out toward the east. I was in a Pullman card made in America. The the Porter was not of my own expert race and I felt like giving him a few pointers. The roadbed was better than in Siberia. Always war hovered near us. They pulled down the curtains early. I wanted to look out, but fortunately I read first, I first read the post bed note, the posted notices, quote, passengers between Hake and Agoner must not look out of the windows on penalty of severe punishment, end quote. I did not look out. We swept along a great wide plain and the cold wind poured straight down from the North Pole. It was a desolate barren land and the solemn and the seldom folk crept warily along the lonely way. What would one do, asked the Norwegian on his way to China, if set out on that plane? Someone suggested the radio, but could you get a station whose language you understood? Then the scene began to change and here was the Sangari River, flowing north to Amur and the Arctic Ocean. It was filled with shipping, driven south by the ice and about to tie up for the winter. Then came Harbin, the first city of Manchuco, a big and busy place, the only remaining center of Tsarist Russia on Earth. The whole scene changed as if by magic. We rode out of the desert and desolation of the northern desert. We flew easily on a perfect roadbed, blasted with rock and in Japanese cars better than Pullman's. The service was perfect. We were leaving the old border and haunts of the bandits, the modern successors of Genghis Khan. We came to Shingsking, capital of the new Manchurian state, set up by Japan in 1932. The Hotel Yamato was a joy. I had a room with a bath, and I di- and did I bathe? <laughs> there, all of those little Japanese touches, white runners over the stair carpets, spotless and clean, a clean blue kimono for each guest, slippers in each room, cool drinking water and thermos jugs, a cloth damp with hot water, passed to each guest in the grill to wipe his hands and face before eating, an exact, quick and oh so courteous service. The hotel had once been a Russian club and sits amidst ancient acacias. To the right as one emerges in the stinging wind lies the characteristic Chinese city huddled and crouching with its strange signs and ancient insignia, its push of folk, its little mysterious shops, its air at once sordid and romantic. Then to the left of the hotel rises the beginnings of the new Japanese city, or the city of the new Manchukuo, planned by the Japanese. It is cast with broad streets, beautiful and large public buildings, some finished, some yet building, some only projected. Clearly, this colonial effort of a colored nation is something to watch. I'm in the ancient capital of the Manchu emperors. Here in 1936 lived 424,000 persons. Here started that Manchu dynasty for which 267 years ruled China. In 1962, the Xing dynasty conquered the celebrated Chinese means made this town their capital until in 1644 they moved to Peking and Mukden became Peitu or home capital. Here in 1905 was fought that awful battle between the Russians and the Japanese when 160,000 human beings were killed and wounded and and Japan took her place among the powers. It is a singular city, an ancient walled town, 300 years old with palaces, tombs, walls within walls, a new Japanese city broad and square, busy and beautiful. This is is surely the place to pause and ask, what is this Manchurian venture of Japan and what does it mean? Today, November 1936, I am standing where in 1905, Japan blockaded the Russian fleet in yonder, shining harbor of the Yellow Sea and creeping up the great harsh peaks of these wild mountains made Europe surrender to Asia. It was a historic, it was historic ground. Manchuria is the natural mainland of the Isles of Japan. She wrested it from China in the war of 1895, but Europe made her surrender it. Then the Russians calmly walked in and took it. They extended the Siberian railroad through it and seizing the Harbor of Port Arthur, fortified it and built the city of Dalny. Along came Germany and seized the peninsula of Shantung just south and fortified that. Already England had seized Hong Kong while France was in Indochina. Japan was surrounded with guns pointed at her heart. Then came the Russian-Japanese War and Japan secured the extreme point of the Cape as a lease, but Russia was still behind her and Germany at her side. After the First World War, the situation changed. Japan said to England, who held India, Hong Kong, half of Africa and all of the continent of Australia to France, who had North Africa and Syria, to America, who held half of Mexico, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and the Canal Zone, quote, I need Manchuria more than you need any of these territories. Manchuria today has no government, but is in the hands of roving bandits. Its land and materials are absolutely necessary to my development and expansion as a nation, end quote. Moreover, there was one thing more which Japan did not say aloud, but which was even more true, quote, Unless I take Manchuria now, when you cannot stop me, you will seize it at the very first moment you can, England, France, and America, (laughs) gorged with the loot of the world, suddenly became highly moral on the subject of annexing other people's land. No, they said. (laughs) And Japan walked out of the League of Nations and kept Manchuria. (laughs) What is Japan doing for the people of Manchuria and how is she doing it? Is she building up a caste of superiors and inferiors? Is is she reducing the mass of the people to slavery and poverty? Is she stealing the land and monopolizing the natural resources? Are the people of Manchuria happier or more miserable for the presence of this foreign power on their soil? Doubtless there is much to complain of in Manchukuo in 1936, but given the colonial nexus, Japan seemed to me to be doing better work than Great Britain or France were doing. I sensed that Japan was a fourth partner among the dictators of world organization, in which Great Britain and Western Europe, Italy and Eastern Europe, and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics were the other three. Japan was determined to be recognized as a world power, and her ultimate aim was the domination of Asia. I was curious to know just how far this domination would follow the Western model, or how far it would follow some form of socialism. For historic and other reasons, it would not follow Russia, but there was at least equal reason for refusing the lead of Great Britain or France or the United States. On this matter, I took occasion to talk a half hour with Yosuke Matsuoka, the man who led the Japanese delegates when they walked out of the League of Nations in 1935. He is a quiet man, slow and low of speech, who as president of the state railways of Manchuria, ranks as a viceroy and premier, with the destinies of 30 million in his hands. And moreover with the responsibility of proving to the world that colonial enterprise by a colored nation need not imply the caste, exploitation and subjection, which it has always implied in the case of white Europe. He took time to talk with me while automobiles with visitors and officials waited, not because I represented power, influence or publicity, but because I too was a colored man and interested in the development and independence of the colored peoples of the world. We talked of industry, capitalism, and communism. He said that in some ways, Japan was the most communistic of modern states. In Japan, there had never been that strong sense of individual ownership of property that characterizes so many people. There was on the contrary, through the family and clan, and a strong sense of common ownership of all wealth, of willingness to give to others and sacrifice for the common good. I ventured boldly to add, you Japanese, by your marvelous national discipline, were able without revolution to transform Japan from feudalism to industrialism. May it not be possible again without revolution and with that same discipline and sacrifice for Japan to make that further inevitable change from private profit to public welfare Matsuoka expressed agreement with me and I think he was sincere, but Japan was under curious double control at the time, which later I was to realize. Meantime, I hurried to China, which was end and aim of all Imperial planning from America to Japan and from the tw- 10th century to the 20th. In the morning, I went down to the great Harbor of Dairen. My friends handed me three colored streamers of farewell and following the beautiful Japanese custom, I and a dozen others held one end while the friends ashore unwound the other ends until a rainbow of colored strips of paper streamed from ship to shore and I bade Manchuoko goodbye. We sailed into the Yellow Sea on a perfect day. Rough brown mountains lined the left with oil refineries and factories, boats and trains. Then further out, the hills became barren, except where the Japanese, with infinite patience, are covering them with tiny pine trees, whose sturdy roots will, in some fifty years, break up the barren waste, which Russia, with which Russia left, and clothe the hills again in green. Further and further, the mountains retreated on our left. A precipitous isle came and went, and we were on the open water, sailing to China. I went out to watch the death of day. The sun was a ball of beaten gold with pink and purple cloud streamers floating east. Quickly, it became a flattened burning egg resting on the horizon. Then it fell into the green waters of the Yellow Sea, hissing with silent light and sending glory cries to the high heavens. China is inconceivable. Here first, a man out of the empty West realizes where the population of the world really centers. Never before has a land so affected me. For Africa, I had more emotion, a greater wave of understanding and recognition. But China to the wayfarer of a little week, and I suspect of a little year, is incomprehensible. I have, of course, a theory and explanation which brings some vague meaning to the massive things I've seen and heard. But I understand now, as never before, how I have mistrusted human history and missed the whole meaning of a people. And this I know, any attempt to explain the world without giving China a place of extraordinary prominence is futile. Perhaps the riddle of the universe will be settled in China and if not, in no part of the world which ignores China. Peking, or Peiping as it was then, stands on that wide North plain, sweeping up to Siberia and down to the Yangtze-Qiang. Kiang. is bathed in cold sunshine it lies in two great rectangles with a square within. The square to the north, with vast, gray, massive walls, is the Tartar city. This was a thousand years old when Christ was born and two thousand years old when Genghis Khan made it his capital. Here, the Manchu emperors ruled China for 300 years, building their power on the magnificence of the Sungs and Mings. Within this Tartar city, surrounded by pink walls, 20 feet high and occupying two square miles, is the imperial city and within the imperial city is the red-walled Forbidden City, which no foreigner entered until 1900. Outside and to the south of the Tartar City lies the oblong Chinese city with walls 30 feet high. With these walls and walls within walls dwell a million and a half of people on 20 square miles of land. Packed with monuments, buildings, towers, arches, tile, porcelain, jewels, inscriptions, manuscripts, and customs, habits, songs, and a strange language, that go back and illustrate and explain the history of 500 million people for 5,000 years. Nearly everyone has seen some echo or imitation of a Chinese city. There is one in New York, one in Chicago, and a real one in San Francisco. The casual observer might think these imitations caricatures, but one sees Chenmen Street in Peiping, and one knows that this human organism is a typical Chinese invention, age old, rooted in the soul of a people and expressing as well as any one thing one can express, their life and work and play. First of all, it is full of people. It reeks with humanity. It crowds, pushes, swarms. Oh, the first day I was in Peiping, I must have walked 10 miles on this street and it's cross allies. It is a continuous succession of little shop stores, artisans, workshops, restaurants, amusement centers, sidewalk markets, personal services. It is commercialism, ingrained, concentrated, complete. It caters to every want of the streaming humanity that eddies through it like an endless flood. In some Negro sections of New Orleans or Charleston, there's a faint approach to the situation, but only faint for this is infinitely older with the tradition and autonomy which the newer Negro city lacks. Perhaps, In the Africa of the Middle Ages, there was something like it. Crowded as are the merchants and purveyors to human want, humanity, the buyers, the seekers, are more numerous. Someone has said that if the population of Europe were swept away tomorrow, it could be repeopled from China and yet leave behind a population as dense as that of the United States. It is in the sheer weight of numbers that China must be hearkened to, if for nothing else, Babies, babies everywhere, and women nowhere, save as mothers, housekeepers, and followers of the world's oldest profession. I have seen the Temple of Heaven, one of the world's most beautiful monuments, the Forbidden City, with its peacock throne, its palaces and store of treasure, despite the loot which drunken Europe stole after the Boxer War, and carried away in the name of Christianity. There is the Temple of Confucius and the stone classic writings of old China. There is the Lama Monastery of Buddha and the statues of the 18 disciplines, six black and six brown who brought Buddhism to China. At last two things whose memory lingers, that summer palace which the intrepid Empress Dowager set upon a hill in unearthly splendor That stone-faced woman who laughed at fate and took 20 million set aside for a navy and built a fairyland with lake and marble bridge, and glory-roofed palaces, rising one above the other until they stood above the earth and just beneath the sky, looking down on imperial peaking. She lost an empire but gained immortality. Then and now Europe prefers navies. Amid this amorphous mass of men, with its age-old monuments of human power, beauty and glory with its helpless undefended welter of misery and toil there is an organization of life and impenetrable will to survive that neither imperial tyranny nor industrial exploitation nor famine starvation nor pestilence can kill it is eternal life facing disaster and triumphing imperturbably Their past to glory from the earth when imperial China fell. Built as it was on skulls, it was bravely built, and its remains are magnificent. In all central respects, they surpass the stones of Europe. Where Europe counts its years in hundreds, Asia counts its thousands. There is absent that all to apparent European effort to dramatize and exaggerate and misrepresent the past, to emphasize war and personal glory. China shows a finer effort to let the past stand silent, frank and unadorned, to tell the truth simply about men and fully, and to record the triumphs of education, family, life, and literature far more than murder. Yeah, I know. (laughs) All that Europe has done, China did before, save in the rapid breathless material capitalistic technique of the 19th century. With that transitory flash of power and that alone, Europe raped and enslaved the world from 1600 to 1900. She used China exactly as she did Africa, South and Central America, and her own working classes. It is essential to grasp that this profit-making by monopoly of capital and purchase of labor as a commodity is a universal European technique applied to all peoples. European workers, African transported slaves, American imported slaves and immigrant workers, and Asiatic coolies. I write this standing on the Great Wall of China with 23 centuries beneath my feet. The purple dread, the purple crags of Manchuria lie beyond the valley, while behind are the yellow and brown mountains of China. For 70 cents, I have been carried upon the shoulders of four men and down again. And here I stand on what has been called the only work of man visible from Mars. It is no mud fence or pile of cobbles. It surpasses that mighty bastion of Constantinople, which so many centuries saved Mediterranean civilization from German barbarism. This is a wall of carefully cut stone, mitted and laid with perfect matching and eternal mortar from 20 to 50 feet high and 2,500 miles long, built by a million men, castellated with perfect brick and standing mute and immutable for more than 2,000 years, such as China. Hmm. Shanghai is an epitome of racial strife, the economic struggle, the human paradox of modern life. Here is the greatest city of the most populous nation on earth, with the larger part of it owned, governed, and policed by foreign nations. With Europe largely controlling its capital commerce, mining rivers and manufacturers, with the vast welter of the hardest working class in the world, paid less than an average of 25 cents a day, with the glittering modern life of skyscrapers, majestic hotels, theaters, and nightclubs, In the city of nations are 19,000 Japanese, 11,000 British, 10,000 Russians, 4,000 Americans, and 10,000 foreigners of other nationality, living in the midst of three million Chinese. The city is divided openly by nations. Foreign troops parade its streets. Foreign warships sit calmly in her gates. Foreigners tell this city what it may and may not do. Even at that, matters are not as bad as they once were. In 1936, foreigners acknowledged that Chinese have some rights in China. Chinese, uh, who can afford men, who can afford if many, even visit the city racetrack from which they were long excluded. It is not common now to kick a coolie or throw a rickshaw's fare on the ground. Yet, yesterday afternoon, I saw a little English boy of perhaps four years order three Chinese children out of his imperial way on the sidewalk of the Bund, and they meekly obeyed and stepped into the gutter. It looked quite like Mississippi. And too, I met a missionary from Mississippi, teaching in the Baptist University of Shanghai. The explanation is simple, capital. Into a land rich in fertility, natural resources and great water highways, White Europe has poured machinery, tools, and materials so as to put the hardest working people on earth to making goods and rendering services, for example, for and rendering services for something. For Europe. For what?
0: For Europe, I think. Oh,
3: okay, right, for Europe. The profit has been enormous, but not only Europe, but Asia has joined in exploitation. Japan, Japanese, and Chinese have invested in Chinese cheap labor and called it progress. The result is baffling. Always there is this mass of labor labor that has never learned to revolt to demand and is only beginning to strike in a few mass industries, ideal labor for profits. The wage is low and only balanced by low cost of living. The rickshaw man drags you, running five miles or more in a half hour a cent and one half to three cents. the gardener A gardener gets five dollars a month with room and board, which is rice and a bit else, a factory hand, I've been told may get 12 cents a day. A miner's wage of 25 cents a day was cited as high, since he could live on less than 10 cents. I went by invitation to the American-supported University of Shanghai and I said to the president that I would like to talk to a group of Chinese and discuss frankly racial and social matters. He arranged a luncheon at the Chinese Bankers Club. There were present one of the editors of the China Press, secretary general of the Bank of China, the general manager of the China Publishing Company, the director of the Chinese School for Shanghai and the executive secretary of the China Institute of International Relations. We talked nearly three hours. I plunged in recklessly. I told them of my slave ancestors, of my education and travels, of the Negro problems. Then I turned on them and said, how far do you think Europe can continue to dominate the world? Or how far do you envisage a world whose spiritual center is Asia and the colored races? You have escaped from the domination of Europe politically since the World War, at least in part. But how do you propose to escape from the domination of European capital? How are your working classes progressing? Why is it that you hate Japan more than Europe when you have suffered more from England, France, and Germany than from Japan? There ensued a considerable silence in which I joined. Then we talked and it was a most illuminating conversation from which I may paraphrase as follows. Asia is still under the spell of Europe, although not as completely as a while back. It is not our ideal simply to, to ape Europe. We know little of India or Africa or Africa and America. We see the danger of European capital and are slowly extricating ourselves by seeking to establish control of capital by the political power of taxation and regulation. We have stabilized our currency. No longer do English Hong Kong notes form our chief circulating medium. Our wages are too low, but slowly rising. Labor legislation is appearing. We have 16 million children in school with short terms and inadequate equipment, but a beginning of the fight against our 90% illiteracy. The whole emancipation of China was primarily an emancipation from European capitalistic control. They knew it. They told me some of the plans and worked toward freedom. I even went down and visited that new ghost capital between Shanghai and the sea, which was planned to cut Shanghai's supremacy in trade and transfer it to a Chinese city ruled by the Chinese. But it was a thing half begun and half done. A beautiful and empty library stood there, a marble city hall. Streets were there and some houses, everything but people. And they explained that it took capital to do this. They did not have the capital and therein lay the secret. They proposed to out capital capital. They were going to build a new Chinese industry which should emancipate them from European industry, and they felt themselves able to do this. But they bitterly resented the intrusion of Japan, coming in as though she were a Western power destined to dominate Orientals, as though she, the culture child of China, was going to show China the way of life that China, which had lived a thousand years before Japan, was born and would live long after Japan's end. The intrusion of Japan was resented because of its very success and because of its all too apt imitation of Western technique. The Chinese had not been invited to hold hands with their yellow brother and march side by side toward freedom. They were ordered rather to put their manpower at the mercy of Japanese exploitation and let Japan finish what England, France, and Germany had begun, but would never now complete. There was more they might have said, much more, but it was difficult for this mixed group to phrase it, and they were not sure how much I knew or just where my sympathies would be. But I knew something of the tragedy of China, Japan, and Europe in the 19th century. Here were kindred peoples in Eastern Asia, stretching from Sakhalin to the Indies, and mingling their blood with the whites of Siberia and the blacks of the South Seas. On a fringe of Northern Islands, Japan developed a variation of Chinese culture. On the continent, the Chinese built a magnificent pattern of life. To these in the 19th century, came Britain and America to trade. America forced its way into Japan and Britain opened China to the Indian Opium, which the British were determined to sell from their Indian colony. Trade ensued slowly and methodically in Japan, roughly and drunkenly in China until by the time of the American Civil War, China was all but a British colony while Japan was silently preparing to meet the whites on their own ground. Rebellion and hatred of the whites ebbed and flowed in China while industry grew in Japan. And by 1894, Japan challenged China and disclosed her weakness to Europe, insisting only on being counted in among the harpies who gathered about the corpse. It was a curious flanking movement toward power as a partial master of China. Japan appeared as partner of Europe in the further exploitation of Asia. The very boldness of this move showed a deference to the power and methods of Europe, which was flattering. It made no bid for an an Asia independent of Europe. It only asked partnership with Europe in Asiatic domination Britain rose promptly to the bait, but China was not dead. The Boxers arose in rebellion. The intrepid Empress Dowager played politics, and a dreamer and reformer, Sun Yat-sen, began to loosen the Manchus, the Manchus on their throne. Japan conquered Tsarist Russia, but Communist Russia gave advice and training to Sun Yat-sen. When the Manchus were overthrown. Europe and the United States were set on the control of Asia, but Japan was a problem. Could a colored nation be allowed to equal the white in exploitation of Asia? After the Russo-Japanese war, Britain thought yes. After the first world war, Australia and the United States persuaded her to change her mind. So Japan, egged on by her military masters, took the bit into her teeth and resolved to conquer Asia in the face of the world. She discounted China as too weak and submissive to be a partner and gained the bitter enmity of those Chinese who were destined to rebuild China. It was at this point that I landed in China and had a glimpse of Japan. I had seen the Chinese University in Moscow in 1926 and I knew how Sun Yat-sen, son of a peasant, had received sympathy and cooperation from Russia alone when he appealed to the West for help to establish the Chinese Republic after the overthrow of the Manchus. He saw the Russian Revolution in 1917, the year his Kuomintang party attempted to take charge of China. The divisions in China were irreconcilable, and he appealed to the Soviets. He received trained leaders and Borodin was sent as an advisor and ambassador At the first party Congress held in 1924, communists were admitted. A military academy was founded and a certain young man of 38 years of age named Chiang Kai-shek educated in Japan was on Borden's advice made head of it. Cancer and continual internal bickering among his followers killed the great Sun Yat-sen in March, 1925. And in September, Chiang Kai-shek became commander of the Kuomintang party and proceeded to organize the party. The next year, he had deserted the communists, murdered thousands of students and workers, and with the help of rich bankers, set up rule in Shanghai, while Burodin and the communists ruled in Hankow, 500 miles west. But Shang proved the stronger. His armies moved north and seized Peiping, and his government gained recognition from all Europe. Sheng pretended to keep Sun Yat-sen's principles of nationalism, democracy, and people's livelihood, but he married into the rich Sun family and ended in such dictatorship and reaction that even while I was in China in December 1936, the Northern Chinese, both warlord and communist, resented his surrender to Japanese imperialism, kidnapped him, hanging on a rock in his nightshirt and without his false teeth, and held him until he promised to fight Japan. Senia's Sen's program was communism not the complete russian line but an extreme socialism which envisioned which envisaged division of the land control of industry ownership of capital and heavy industry and the welfare state how interesting it would have been if russia and china had been able to cooperate in 1936 as in 1926 On the contrary, in 1936, an uncertain, distracted China, led by a greedy, crafty man of no ideals or integrity, was face to face with a great new Asiatic imperialism, set to challenge the imperialism of Europe on its own grounds and with its own methods. The most disconcerting thing about Asia in 1936 was the burning hatred of China and Japan. It was a vivid, real thing and a major threat to the peace of the world. I discounted it before I came to Asia. Then I could scarcely exaggerate it. With China and Japan in understanding and in cooperation, the domination of Europe, the enslavement and insult and exploitation of the darker majority of mankind would have been an everlasting end. But with China and Japan in rivalry, war and hatred, Europe still continued in 1936 to rule the world for her own ends. What is the basis of the trouble between Japan and China, China and Japan? China's submission to white aggression and Japanese resistance, Japanese determination to cooperate with Europe, even when that involved aggression in China, the disappearance of central control in China and the growth of perfect teamwork in Japan. Finally, the open and veiled effort of Europe to increase in every way the break between these countries, between these cousins. Thus Asia is the prize of the world, its materials, its millions of cheap docile workers, its climate, rivers, and mountains. All this means wealth, luxury, and magnificence to those who own, control, and exploit China. Across the narrow straits is a people determined to wrest control of China from the white world. Japan proposes to accomplish this by using the white world's technique and organization which she has learned meticulously ever since Perry forced her gates and insulted her. Deftly and courteously, she evaded Western control. Thoroughly and continuously, she studied Western methods until in 1936, the West feared Japanese industrial organization more than any in the world. I left the bustle and roar of Shanghai December 1st, 1936. We sailed the sea of Japan and all night it rioted. Next noon, I was at Nagasaki. Busy, quiet, polite, and disciplined. Yes, disciplined. That is the word for Japan. Why do we always think instinctively of islands as flat and low? I suppose it is the influence of maps. Japan is mountain peak in every guise, fashion, and height. It gives a primary impression of soaring height and strength as I sailed the inland sea from Nagasaki to Kobe. There is quiet efficiency and order in the porters in the hills, in the villages, nestling low on the sides of mountains. I've never been so well been welcomed to a land, least of all my own, as I was welcomed to Japan. I was helped past the port officials white Americans being politely but firmly elbowed aside, to their open-mouthed surprise. It was astonishing to be at last in a colored country able and determined to run itself without white advice. And Japan considers itself colored and not white. I have already tested this in conversation and suggestion. I was passed deftly through customs. The young fellow who examined my books and papers seemed a bit suspicious at several volumes. He balked definitely at a translation of Karl Marx's Capital and sent it to higher authority, but it came back uncensored we climbed into a taxi and rode from Kobe to Osaka, the industrial capital of Japan. It was almost a continuous city from the great importing center to the chief manufacturing and exporting center of Japan. My hotel had been selected and the manager was there in front to welcome me with a host of bowing servants. Never before has any land indicated that it knew or cared whether I arrived or not, except of course, Africa. What is Japan? I am, I admit, prejudiced in its favor, but I am trying to judge it fairly. First of all, it is colored. The blonde-haired world of my summer and fall is gone. The hair of the Japanese is coal black with once in a thousand a faint brown. The skins vary from white to sallow and then to yellow and brown. Casually, if I woke up suddenly in Japan, I should imagine myself among New Orleans or Charleston mulattoes. But the most extraordinary thing about the Japanese is not physical, it is spiritual. They're independent and self-reliant and self-sufficient colored folk in a white world. They have no fear of white folk or secret envy. Whatever white folk do or have done, the Japanese are sure they can do better and they do. They're more prompt than New England. Even their ships start on the minute and you can set your watch by their trains. (laughs) They're cleaner than the Dutch, and for politeness and courtesy in public and private, the French are not even in the running. (laughs) Their cities, let me say a word of Osaka. It has 3 million people and is the seventh city of the world. It has 10,600 factories, producing 420 million worth of goods a year. It receives 20 million tons of goods a year and ships out 12,300,000 12,300,000 tons. It has 8,000 business firms and a harbor which accommodates 184,000 domestic vessels and 2,900 ocean going steamers a year. It is a clean city, beautiful city, built low and broad rather than high with a fine subway, electric cars and buses, and an automobile traffic rivaling European cities. It has broad thoroughfares and narrow winding streets. I found no slums, tiny crowded quarters there were, but always neat and quiet. The red light district with the geisha girls was quietest, most respectable was quietest, most respectable looking of all. It is a busy, hardworking city, but there are no such signs of poverty and grinding, of bitter toil as I saw in Shanghai. The rickshaw has almost disappeared from the streets. Wages are undoubtedly low, but I saw little begging. The leading paper cites 90,000 on relief, mostly old people and children. The intelligence of the public is shown by the numerous bookshops and the fact that the leading paper circulating in several other cities beside Osaka has 5 million readers. The accomplishment of Japan has been to realize the meaning of European aggression on the darker peoples, to discover the secret of the white man's power and then without revolutionary violence, To change her whole civilization and attitude toward the world so as to merge in the 20th century as the equal in education technique health industry and art of any nation on earth it was a colossal task it called for sacrifice it called for genius it called for teamwork all this involved cost it cost freedom and meant severe discipline it meant severe repression it meant force but it was accomplished and japan is proud but in her very pride and accomplishment lies danger. The Europe which she copied was no perfect land, the technique of industry which Japan mastered, the capitalistic regime which she adopted so successfully has, as all thinking men can see today, threatening, if not fatal tendencies. And now, with a Herculean task just behind her, Japan is called again to lead world revolution and lead it with the minimum of violence and upheaval. In the 19th century, Japan saved the world from slavery to Europe. In the 20th century, she is called to save the world from slavery to capital. Japan today has one tremendous advantage. She owns and controls her own capital. She need beg neither Wall Street nor Lombard Street for capital. She has her own engineers and technicians. Above all, she has a labor force that can live in contentment and health on 25 cents a day. Consequently, she is beating the commercial world today and underselling every nation in world markets. She is reaching out with her capital and technique in controlling industry in China and some parts of the South Seas. World commerce is beginning to depend on Japanese goods. Go into any Woolworth store and see, Japanese labor in Japan is displacing white labor in England, France, Germany and America. Japan today is thinking in terms of capitalistic advance and not primarily in terms of human culture. Her attitude toward China is the main case in point. In the 19th century, Japan had to protect China against herself. or otherwise, Europe Europe, moving from the domination of the Chinese would have sunk little Japan into the sea. China Patriots today may not forget that they owe their transfer independence to the fight the Japanese made against European aggression. The Great Wall made it impossible for Europe to dominate the East and the World War was caused by unbridled capitalism. Japan after the war determined to dominate China and other parts of Asia so as to make a recurrence of European aggression impossible. This is the secret of her military power, but Japan forgets the danger of capitalism unbridled production can can, cannot continue indefinitely. Cheap labor is not in the end, cheap for the nation that seeks to build prosperity on it. If Japan in 1936, avoiding temptation had raised the standard of living among her laborers, she could still compete with the world and at the same time develop a mass of workers who'd be the most intelligent and gifted the world has ever seen. Democracy would become possible in a great land based on a really intelligent people. Industry would exist not for production, but for the widest and most profitable consumption made possible by rational distribution of such goods as the people really need for their wheel. China resented the patronage and attempted leadership of Japan, just as blacks in the West Indies have often resented the leadership of mulattoes. What was this upstart Japan but the child of ancient Chinese culture? The aggression of war in 1894 to 1895 came just as Sun Yat-sen, a young man of 28, was organizing his first societies to overthrow the Manchus and helped open the doors of China to Western aggression in which Japan joined. She was among those nations who put down the boxers in 1900. During the First World War, Japan made demands on China, which only a conqueror could expect to attain and which were probably made in anticipation of the coming end of European domination of Asia. But the Nine Power Treaty of 1922 restored international accord on China and left China open to the revolution under Sun Yat-sen. Japan continued interference since she feared loss of Chinese markets. The Shanghai incident came in January 1932 and was caused by an increasing agitation and boycott in South and Middle China, especially at Shanghai, damaging Japan's Chinese trade after the Manchurian crisis. There were mobs and murders. Troops of the various countries were called out and hostilities between the Japanese and Chinese ensued. Japan seized Manchuria on February 24, 1933, the Assembly of the League of Nations by unanimous vote condemned Japan for this action. Matsuoka announced withdrawal from the League of Nations in 1935. It was the fear of England that was pushing Japan. England dominated China and India, Australia and New Zealand. But for the grace of God and the vigilance of the Japanese, she would own Japan. At one time during and after the Russo-Japanese War, recognizing the power and ability of the Japanese, England made an alliance with her as an equal. Then with no reason except the unstated one of color prejudice in America, South Africa, and Australia, and even Britain, of unwillingness to link her fortunes with yellow people, the alliance lapped in 1921. When after the World War, China was disintegrating, Japan knew that unless she seized Manchuria, Europe would, just as England seized and holds Hong Kong, France, Annam, and Germany and Russia, large and larger slices before the war. When Japan seized that part of China, which was nearest anarchy, England, America, and the white world howled. China braced herself and protected by European weakness in Europe's fear of Japan, began a forward development. But she let her bitterness toward Japan Japanese aggression become a leading motive in her quest for new unity and strength. Forgetting all about the worst and longer aggressions of white Europe. Japan found herself between the devil and the deep blue sea, rapprochement with China based on blood kinship kinship and cultural likeness was stopped by war and boycott. That reached unbelievable depths of hatred. Europeans secretly and openly encouraged a split between colored people which played directly into their hands. English papers in 1936 in Shanghai retailed with calm impartiality every scrap of news and gossip calculated to influence China against Japan. Then came rearmament in Europe with Japan outside. There seemed nothing for her to do but seek alliance with Germany and Italy Despite the fact that Germany despises yellow races and Italy's hands are red with the blood of black Africa. Worst of all, this alliance of Japan with fascism sets her down as the enemy of Russia. It was, of course, logical for Japan to recoil from her first European antagonist whose defeat placed her in the family of nations. Moreover, certain points of the Russian Revolution touched Japan on the raw. The attack on clan rule and religious dogma, but the Japanese family group was widely different from what Russia rightly attacked and the Russian Orthodox Church had no remote resemblance to Shinto cultural traditions and customs, or even to tolerant Buddhism as it exists in Japan. These things disposed Japan to oppose the Soviets, but of course the underlying motive was the fear among the capitalists. Japanese industry is controlled by five great groups of capitalists. They are generous and patriotic men. They have helped and often financed and furnished technique by the government at the expense of the taxpayer. They would not and could not deny any demand of that government in the line of taxation or cooperation. Also, clan affiliation ties them to the lowest peasant, but they are capitalists and allied with international capital. They fear Russian communism with its broad class strata and prefer their own vertical family division. Yet their supremacy and government influence is not as great as in many European lands. Above them stands imperial authority and the power of the Japanese family and the deep belief of the Japanese people in their destiny. There is poverty in Japan. There is oppression. There is no democratic freedom. But nowhere in the modern world is there higher literacy as newspaper circulations of one, three, and even five millions prove. The Japanese laborer is not happy, but he is not hopelessly discontented. And this is not stupor, but rather age-long memory of simple wants and joys, and firm faith in ultimate good. Where then, in spite of cruel misunderstanding and frustration, in spite of the rule of wealth and industry for private profit, in spite of the dominant military spirit, no worse, but just as bad as in America, where else in the modern world is there a people so intelligent, so disciplined, so clean and punctual, so instinctively conscious of human good and ill as the Japanese? And where could the world of 1936 better look for leadership eventually toward industry based on well being and not on private profit, and to a democracy which includes the masses of people and is conducted for their benefit? Japan was far from this in 1936. Few voted and voters were limited in power. Wealth ruled in Tokyo as well as in New York, London and Paris. The resistance of China to this program was great and growing. What next? Next could come a change in object on the part of Japan and a change would mean that Japan and China together as equals, would try to industrialize the East and produce goods which the East itself needs as well as goods needed by the West of the world, the rest of the world. And these goods which the masses of China and Japan need would by the pressure of the communistic trends in China be distributed upon a new basis. Not according to the ideals of the West, which Japan is now following so strictly, but according to a new ideal much nearer that of Russia. And strangely enough, corresponding also in part with that integration of Japanese family industry, which makes the nation one industrial whole instead of the class divided industrial system. Which one expects. It must, of course, be Marxian in its abolition of industrial profit, toward which family and state communism in Asia already tends, but which has been frustrated by European influence. It must be Marxian in its division of income according to need, but it may be distinctly Asiatic in its use of vertical clan division and family tie. Instead of reaction toward a new bourgeoisie along horizontal class layers, which must be the temptation of Europe. It would take a new way of thinking on Asiatic lines to work this out, but there would be a chance that out of India, out of Buddhism and Shintoism, out of the age old virtues of Japan and China itself, to provide for this different kind of communism, a thing which so far all attempts at a socialistic state in Europe have failed to produce. That is a communism with its Asiatic stress on character, on goodness, on spirit, through family loyalty and affection, might ward off Thermidor, might stop the tendency of the Western socialistic state to freeze into bureaucracy. Should I continue or stop here?
0: There's one more page.
3: Okay, I'll finish. It might through the philosophy of Gandhi and Tagore of Japan and China really create a vast democracy into which the ruling dictatorship of the proletariat would fuse and deliquesce, and thus instead of socialism ever becoming a stark negation of the freedom of thought and a tyranny of action and propaganda of science and art, it would expand to a great democracy of spirit. There's hope here, vast hope, but the horror of it all is to see the fear of Soviet Russia and the blandishments of Germany and perhaps even of Italy seducing Japan away from China and Asia and seeking to create a fascist bloc which the finer world would eventually must kill or itself perish. To me, the tragedy of this epoch was that Japan learned Western ways too soon and too well and turned from Asia to Europe. She had a fine culture and an exquisite art and an industrial technique surpassed unsurpassed in workmanship and adaptability. The Japanese clan was an effective social organ and her art expression was unsurpassed. She might've led Asia and the world into a new era, but her headstrong leaders chose to apply Western imperialism to her domination of the East and Western profit-making replaced Eastern idealism. If she had succeeded, it might've happened that she would have spread her culture and achieved a co-prosperity sphere with freedom of soul Perhaps, in the dying days of 1936, while great Fujiyama still veiled its silver face, I went down to Yokohama and set foot upon the sea. I sailed east into the sunset again to discover America in my own thought and through the thinking and doing of other folk. 10 days I journeyed until I came at Christmas to an unbelievable land of raining sunshine and everlasting flowers called Hawaii. New Year's, 1937, I stood in California, a fact and fable, with the city of St. Francis of poverty and the birds before me, and lifted up mine eyes to the hills beyond the Golden Gate, which form the rock bound spinal column of America. Lifted them and let drop two small years, two little years. Suddenly, I saw the whole world aflame. hmm okay let's figure out how to stop screen share
0: yeah this is uh i mean uh it's hard to put into words this is such, such a powerful section i mean uh when we talk about why Du, du Bois is a thinker we need for this time, I mean, I think this is Exhibit A. This is so, so significant. I mean, uh, not just historically, but for the moment we're in now. And there's, there's so much uh, here. Um, I think we're all struck as it was ending at the poetry and literary style of how he talks about history. I mean, it's really unmatched. Um, but one thing that really sticks out to me um, is uh, his his model of looking at the world is so sophisticated because when he's talking about Asia or he's talking about the color line, he's not speaking as a cultural nationalist. I mean, in other words, he's not speaking of the skin strategy. He's talking, he's he's taking a very sophisticated approach to looking at the values of these civilizations in Asia, the ways in which their economies, their politics have developed. And he's also uh, not being deterministic or over deterministic in viewing history and historical change. Particularly, I'm thinking about his discussion of Japan, I think is very uh, important because He's talking about the possibilities inherent in Japan. He's talking, he's talking about a lot of the positive things. I was very struck by how he was talking about uh, the way in which Japanese capitalism is very sophisticated because of this five families model and the kind of clan system. And there's even a lot of positive elements of it um, which have allowed it to compete with the West. And I mean, he's, it's interesting because that shows us there's not just an Asian model of socialism, but in some ways there's also an Asian model of capitalism, which is more integrated with these values, which I think you have in Japan and I from what I've read about South Korea, they have a similar kind of setup with these families. Um, and although he's ta- he's talking about the positives of that and the possibilities if they were to push that further into socialism, but he's also pointing out the negatives and then the interference of Europe, the tensions between the how they've exacerbated the tensions between Japan and China. The, the kind of uh, greed that's still there among the elite of Japan as well, and how that kind of led history into a wrong direction. But he's still optimistic about what can be done, the fact that they can overcome these things and the fact that they can cooperate. And I feel that um, understanding Asia today, I mean, there are so many contradictions, there are so many governments which have made mistakes, which have done things which we should rightly criticize, But we can still come back to this point about the values of the civilizations, their long histories, the fact that they have a lot common with each other, and the possibilities of socialism, which are always there. And I feel like that's what can guide the rise of Asia in a, you know, in a very deeply moral direction. And uh, it's only through this, I think, that we can really fully see that picture. I can't think of anything else that will allow us to see uh, the rise of Asia uh, in that way. So I just wanted to just sh- start off by sharing. Yeah. That.
2: Well, the other thing I was thinking is just the sheer limitations of the pure Marxist framework. I mean, you cannot see all of this the way Du Bois sees this unless you have that like expansiveness of thought and just, um, I mean, just you're willing to imagine and, and see the civilization in the way Du Bois sees it. And he's just able to see so many possibilities and explain so many things in history, but also the ironies and tragedies uh, so much more than any you know narrow Western framework. Um, yeah.
4: I also wanted to say that it seems to me like the life force of Western civilization comes from the power structures, but the life force of Uh, like he describes China and Japan, the life force of their civilizational history seems to come from people and this ideal of brotherhood. So it seems like an idea like socialism would take deeper hold when you already are used to thinking in terms of people, in terms of neighbors and so on and so forth. And I've always wondered, I don't know the answer to this question, but then if people originated, people, human beings originated in, in the East and in Africa, what happened while traveling to the West that, you know, the values that you prioritized became so disparate? I don't know the answer to these questions. Why are colored people so different from Western people when they had the same beginnings? I don't think I know. Yeah, I just wanted to say that.
5: Well, that reminded me of the, I forget, I think it must have been the last chapter where Du Bois so beautifully also talks about Greek, like when he's traveling from Russia to Constantinople and he he's standing on this point where the East and the West meets, where he says, what happened to Greece? What happened to Rome? These two civilizations that europe and america and basically western civilization has looked up to and model itself in a lot of ways and he says their biggest flaw the reason why democracy can never truly exist in these you know great civilizations in the european mind is because their civilizations were based on slavery um and and i think that's also why du bois's emphasis on in this chapter of the east that's not about like you were saying Johanna. it's not really as simple as the skin strategy but he's emphasizing values um <laughs> on what foundation will a civilization not only be born out of but be able to sustain itself it's not it cannot be slavery um or in other words it also can't be the degradation of the worker but instead it's like what you were saying Perba, the human factor um And also reminded me of a comment, this chapter, I mean, just the way Du Bois writes so beautifully about the details of Asia and China in particular, the people, you know, when he says babies, babies everywhere, it's just so much life. Um, It reminded me of a comment that Kathy put earlier about how the way that Du Bois talked about um, Europe and specifically, I think maybe it was Constantinople, the way he talked about the West that, you know, it's kind of slowly dying. It reminds you of a wary old man. But then we think of Russia um, when the way he would detail like in such detail, right, about Russia and this productive energy and the aspirations of a new society of how much life there is among the human people. It feels so natural c- to connect Russia to a country like China when he says China's inconceivable, like how can you ever solve the riddle of human life without China, a place of so many, so much people. And, and I think that's why I like that one line where Du Bois says babies, there's babies everywhere. It's just like this feeling of Renaissance and birth. Um, and then on the, meet, in, on the other side of the world, you have the West wary old man trying to cling on, but it's slowly going to
0: sleep. uh read a couple of the comments Uh, as a comment from uh, Nabila she says thank you so much for reading about the two giant societies that are covered in mystery we never understood why everything seems to revolve around them but the hand of the devil is always involved and people all over the world have to rebound from their interference and imperialism Du Bois is deep thank the creator that he recorded his travels and insights Uh, earlier, uh, An had written on, on our conversation about the dictatorship of the proletariat saying, I remember being first introduced to Marxist concept some years ago. And my first reaction to hearing dictatorship of the proletariat was that it was obviously a bad thing. Ha-ha shows the importance of political education. All right, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, It was interesting how also he he framed this point about, as we were saying, dictatorship and democracy. It was was a a much more sophisticated, I think, also than the traditional, just what you would get from Marx or even Lenin, because he's talking about uh, dictatorship and democracy, not just in terms of political economy and uh, the state, but also he's bringing in these other things, spiritual values, family values, and how you have to put all of those together to really fully understand this concept. And I guess you could apply that to what he's arguing about um, socialism a, a, as well. So there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot there uh, generally. And I, I also I would agree with Nabila. I also felt like it was very interesting almost a, also as kind of a travelogue because you know I, sometimes I like to read travelogues or watch videos of people traveling but this is like when he's traveling he's really not just talking about like I went here and saw that it's like, I went here and saw that this is what it revealed. This is how it ties to ancient history. This is how it plays into the world situation at the time. So there's uh, so I think any serious student of China or Japan should really be reading Russia and America. You know, I think it's impossible probably now to understand uh, for any, at least a person in the US to understand uh, those two civilizations without uh, being familiar with this. Oh, I'm
1: sorry. Please go. Go ahead.
2: Uh, I'm also to read about a people and understand what is the potential for human freedom in this society. I feel that's what a lot of students of the world—that's what they're instinctively looking towards. But it's the opposite of the way that you learn about these things in these Western history books. And I mean, like also Emily was saying, the descriptions of the people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know in academia, like in South Asian studies, they read these, you know, European travel logs and stuff, and sometimes the way they describe the people, you know, like these teeming masses mm-hmm. and then, but then, I mean, the way Du Bois sees them, he sees these teeming masses and he just sees life and possibility. Um, so, I mean, I would much rather read the black people going to the East than any of these white Europeans to understand, I mean, they see so much more, um,
6: you yeah.
1: You know, uh... You know, du Bois is so fascinating. Um, and this is, I mean, besides the text, but the text is a way to get into his head, into the ways that he sees the world. And clearly that's what he wants. You know, he's not an objective observer uh, who is. Uh, filled with Western values and prejudices. Uh, It is like he is going to the place where he is free. And he says that Uh, I am treated like a human being in ways that I would never be treated uh, in the United States. The other thing I found very fascinating is that if you take when he uh, was in Germany as a graduate student and he had a scholarship uh, Slater fund and he had pretty much completed uh, a PhD dissertation at the University of Berlin. And suddenly the scholarship is cut off and he has to come back to, as he said, nigger hating America. And he rides a ship across the Atlantic and comes back into the United States from Europe, uh, uh, going west. This time he enters America going east and coming into California. And I think that is very important because it is the west of the United States that faces Asia. And he does mention going through Hawaii, which was occupied by the United States at this time, but is not yet a state. Uh, I think because the other thing and the reason I'm bringing this up, uh, Michelle and I've been talking about this off and on, Du Bois writes allegorically. An allegory is an extended metaphor. So he's doing scientific observation and investigation but he's also because you know he would, he would have to write volumes to pull it all together, so you have to. Uh, uh, do it metaphorically certain things represent larger things, I think that literary style is very important to understand and we probably don't have the time to fully. Uh, maybe somebody does in the group, but uh, to fully explore his literary style. And he is a magnificent writer. I mean, just an unbelievable writer, a poetic writer. And to describe the Great Wall of China in this way, I've never seen the Great Wall of China. I've heard it described but not like this, the bricks, and so on. Then the irony of Japan and China. Japan is an offshoot of China, was probably populated by Chinese, but then becomes its own thing. But then it rejects that from which it came. And I don't think the Chinese have ever gotten over that and looks to the West. And as he says, learned Western ways too soon, too well. And how was it? Too soon and too well and became Western. Uh, And not only the Chinese, of course, but the Vietnamese, the Koreans all resent Japanese imperialism. And what Du Bois is saying here in 1936, only three years, I think three years after Japan had occupied Manchuria and renamed it Manchukuo. And so Du Bois is saying, no, don't do that. That's not, and then ultimately would align with fascist Italy and Nazi Germany against the Soviet Union and against Asia. There is, the way he bundles these things, you know, we often talk our common destiny, of uh, a common future. And then of course, you know, India is far more complicated, I think. I would have loved to see how he would have dealt with India. This, I mean, come on, I mean, South Asia, complexity upon complexity, but, he does say the values of Gandhi and Tagore, and what I take from that, and then he you know links that with a uh, Sanyat Sin. It is the ancient synthesized in new ways to meet the challenges of the modern world, and um, and then of course Russia as Asia because he goes east, uh, Lake Baikal. And he mentions the Buryat people, uh, a a Mongolian tribe. So as he goes East, he enters China from the East. I mean, from the West, you know, coming from Russia. This is, and then of course the civilizational framing of this, Uh, it's not just, what you can do in terms of changing structures and modes of economics and politics. But you have to know the values upon which all of this is based. You know, who are the people? And and this idea that people are the creations of long historical processes, that individuals and collectives of people are not just separate individuals, separate entities, but they are part of civilization and that they are carriers of values and beliefs. Uh, and my, my last point, you know, this, uh, this thing of the, um, of the infinitude of time, that life is not a matter of just the individuals. And this is something uh, again, Michelle brought to my attention in the novel, Dark Princess, where where Du Bois says, I think he says it through Princess Cotalia, that our life is not just our life. What we do not do now will be completed by others. And there is something infinite about each life and each life is the product of an infinity. Uh, so I, I agree the way you put that, uh, Jahan. There are ancient spiritual values, intellectual values, not just spiritual, deep uh, interrogations, not just of epistemologies, ways of knowing, but ontologies, ways of being. And um, The, the humility that he approaches this task of telling this story. Uh, so many academics and scholars could learn from Du Bois' humility, especially when engaging uh, non Western civilizations. And as always, I really want to thank Michelle for reading this so intelligently and so carefully. It's very difficult. I mean, really, thank you.
5: Oh,
3: thanks, Doc. Um, Actually, I wanted to say that something I was so struck by in reading this was this tradition of how Black America relates to Asia and Africa, but then uniquely Asia. And You know, it's it's like you had mentioned, it's not coming from a place of cultural nationalism, but rather undergirded by this belief that if you are concerned with world humanity, like you will find a place in Africa and Asia, like you will see yourself in the values, like the millennial old values and the strivings and the possibilities of these great civilizations. And I actually just wanted to reread one of the paragraphs from page 134, where Du Bois says, quote, China is inconceivable. Here first, a man out of the empty West realizes where the population of the world really centers. Never before has a land so affected me. For Africa, I had more emotion, a greater wave of understanding and recognition. But China to the wayfarer of a little week and I suspect of a little year is incomprehensible. I have, of course, a theory and explanation which brings some vague meaning to the mass of things I've seen and heard. But I understood, but I understand now as never before how I have mistrusted human history and missed the whole meaning of a people. And this I know, any attempt to explain the world without giving China a place of extraordinary prominence is futile. Perhaps the riddle of the universe will be settled in China, and if not, in no part of the world which ignores China." Um, Yeah, it also just makes me think about like when Robeson visited, um, or no, Muhammad Ali visited the Soviet Union and said that he felt so free or he felt so humanized by what he saw there or when Huey Newton visited China and said like, I felt so free. Um, There's just something really beautiful in that legacy because I think especially with politics today, people, even if they are relating to older values, they usually do it through kind of a nationalist lens. But Actually, I think what Du Bois, the model that Du Bois is giving us is one where you really see this this deep linkage and this deep bond of world humanity, where, yeah, like like you said, there is something infinite about it where, yeah, I can't quite grasp it in words, but you it's a struggle waged on a on an eternal plane that is completely that encompasses all of humanity. You know, like you will see yourself in Asia, you will see yourself in Africa, like even if you are white and American, you know, if you are rooted in these principles, like, yeah, you will you will feel a part of that, you know, that that broad sweep of humanity.
6: And to add to that point, that's kind of like how he was talking. It was every time. Like he talked about China and then he connected to like um what was it? Some part in the South, Mississippi for example, or like in Japan and Charleston mulattoes, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah,
1: New Orleans and Charleston,
6: yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um so what you're saying, Michelle, is um I was thinking about how he was writing about Japan and um that goodwill of people and that might have something to do um with that kind of connection to the question of time that you guys are talking about. But there's a lot that we're talking about. And I was just thinking about that too. Because it's like Du Bois as the writer, you know, and the historian Du Bois as the human being also, you know, looking at the world in his particular time, like what was going on in the historic moment that he was writing in. There was questions. Because I like that paragraph too, Michelle, that you read. And, um, you know, what Doc, you pointed out already with China and Japan, I was thinking about that too. It's like, why was China so bitter? Well, you know, there's where did Japan come from and why does it choose the West? And it's reminding me a lot. yeah. Like it's reminding me of like this kind of time that we're in now. I'm just thinking about that kind of spitballing a little bit because I'm thinking like, well, how come there's such a disconnection um black people have with their own civilization? For example, and that could be said of any immigrant that comes to America and chooses the West, you know. Um and I think that too, like when we're like last week we are talking about how this the chapter and how Du Bois is writing is so beautiful and like what is beauty and I was thinking about that like all week you know and what how does that you know touch um a certain like uh, understanding a certain you know kind of principle within people like it connects with people and um like first when you, when this chapter starts, he's in the train and he's traveling, you know, like he's looking at the service of, uh, whatever, whatever, I forgot, whatever, how specifically, but it's just really like clear in my head as to what is going on and how he's seeing it. And then from there, like Jahan, you were saying, like, um, you know, I actually watch those travel logs too. I like them. And, uh, It's true, he connects it to this deep understanding of civilization and history. And, like, I think the, the, when we are like, I, we were used to talk about, like, well, what is truth and why is truth so important? How does it, um, be disregarded? You know, especially at this time, there's the ideological confusion or whatever that, um, that's, also like, or it should be a part of that literary question, you know, uh, with, uh, how is the boys writing and what is he writing about? And, um, yeah. but it's like, you know, these concepts of like love, beauty, um, people and these sense of like moral values or whatever, they all have, uh, I guess a higher stage of significance, Um, you know, because Brandon was talking about how King was saying it, you know, it's not like that, what is love, that kind of thing. Um, But it gets to that, what uh, Dr. already started out with, with the dictatorship of the people Um, and how that, well, or that civilizational state, like an understanding of what that is really Seems to be coming through um, his writing in particular, and how he was writing, Mm -hmm. Um, but also because like a question that I have with this with this um, uh, section that we read was about Sun uh, Sun Yat Sen, and I it wasn't clear to me as though he was tortured, you know. why there was that uh, submission uh, within China. And that could be my like, you know, kind of research thing, but um, but like what Du Bois is pointing out is the sense of the future, you know, where is the world going to turn? Mm-hmm. And uh, essentially that is grounded in this understanding of a civilization wherein Du Bois comes from and stems um, but also where the peoples of the world, China, Japan and so forth ha- do stem and must continue to be connected to in order to have a sense of future, um, but.
1: You know, there's, there's something here also, just uh, just on that part that you read Michelle about uh, how the world and humanity and history is inconceivable without China. That that part where he says, um, I think, I don't have it before me that the secret of the universe would be discovered in China. I think he's talking about the human universe. Uh, uh, That's what I think he's getting at there, which is very, very important at this time, that, um, yeah, that I just want to say. The other thing is, I get the sense that Du Bois hoped against hope that China, that Japan would not join Europe in a war against the Soviet Union, you know, and Japan enters that war as, you know, against the Soviet Union uh, because it wanted to be a part of the repartitioning of the Soviet Union among the Western powers. And that was the point of uh, Germany uh, attacking the Soviet Union and being encouraged in this by Winston Churchill. Uh, Du Bois's sense that had had Japan not entered the war, because Japan was a technologically and economically and really socially the most developed Asian country. Suppose Japan had not entered the war and had joined with China in building something new, an all European co-prosperity zone. Uh, that's what he was hoping for. Uh, and I would say always at the core of Du Bois's thinking politically is to avoid imperialist wars. And uh, yeah. Uh, okay,
0: bring in some more comments, uh, Jake, Uh, uh, Jacob Harris writes, uh, I feel like Du Bois is introducing us to the world. He brings us so close to the place, people, spirit of China and Japan. I've never been to these places, but after reading about the East through Du Bois' eyes, I feel closer to the vastness of the world. Like I knew the world was big and beautiful, but I didn't know the world and its people were so big and so beautiful.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Yvonne writes, I was in China in 2008, and among other places, I did go to the Great Wall Beijing and Shanghai. I will have to review my many photos The Du Bois' description of his experiences. Uh, Nandita writes to us from India, she says, I think Du Bois' conception of an Asiatic Communism is something that will have to be explored for the future. I'm thinking also about Doc's outline of the civilizational state as being a dictatorship of the whole people. I think in India in particular, Nehru and others may have made a mistake in keeping too much of the British parliamentary system. Mm -hmm. Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi that is, was suggesting at the time that the Congress be disbanded as a political party and be turned into a service organization. I wonder if he meant as a kind of state carrying out functions of the government and a body that could be organically of and for the people.
1: You know, I know that uh, Nanditha is a a student of Gandhi's writings, And I I would like if she would be kind enough to explore uh, Gandhi's concept of the post-independent state, if not parliamentary democracy, which I know he was against, Um, you know, and and he, you know, Gandhi was like Du Bois. He had, Gandhi had contempt for the West. You know, I mean, there's no, and for the racism and so on and so forth. But uh, I would like to know what was his concept of the state and, you know, Uh, James Lawson, who was a student of Gandhi's, you know, in the conversation that we had with him about state power. uh, If you recall, he said um, that the nonviolent philosophy had no theory of the seizure of state power or of the way the state would look. And uh, just one last thing I would say, did Gandhi was Gandhi's vision closer to the state of the whole people at the time of independence, uh, as as a, um, an idea? Uh, as you know, uh, in China, when they seized power, they established the dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, but I, I would I would like to know those questions because they might apply more now than they would have applied, let us say in 1947 when uh, India became independent.
0: And I I, I think that's definitely an important area for Nanta and others to look into. I think uh, little that I know is that he he did indeed uh, believes that the Congress should be uh, ended as a political party and turn into this kind of service organization. And he had a great uh, belief in kind of village level economy and post-independence and democracy in the state being very tied to the village economy rather than modernizing along European lines. But
1: but that's where India differs from China. China has 4,000 years of a centralized state and a bureaucracy. India is more decentralized, you know, even in its religions, you know, uh, and even in the practice of caste, you know, as D.D. Kosambi pointed. So, yeah, so, well, also, uh,
0: I mean, it's a, it, this is also this is a, a serious uh, topic to to research and understand. In that, I think that there is obviously there is an ancient history going back to ancient times of various kinds of states uh, in the subcontinent, including states that uh, were based on nonviolence philosophically and other traditions like that of course, I think it's true that unlike China, those states have basically been on what we could call somewhat of a federal model in that it was more of a confederation of different kinds of states. With, I mean, at, at different times in history, it varied how much power the central authority had, but certainly there was a kind of po- political, economic, and social uh, unity of some sort. And I think that the challenge is recovering that history, really understanding and understanding how it could be rebuilt and applied today rather than uh, governing through this British uh, parliamentary system and this, because I, the other difference I think between uh, perhaps between China and India is that China, they had this thing, the West and Japan split, split it up into spheres of influence, but still the emperor and all that remained, even though they may have become weakened. And uh, so at least the state was still relatively intact. But in comparison, in India, the British basically started by defeating and destroying all these different localized states and rulers, and then eventually overthrew the central authority, which was the Mughal emperor, and sent him into exile, and then proceeded to dismantle whatever was there of the uh, indigenous traditions of the state, and built in this British civil service and bureaucracy, which all of the states in the post-independent states of South Asia inherited and are still pretty much uh, run through. So I think the challenge is recovering that older history, what it was, how it was governed and how can we have a modern version of that and how can it be implemented? Uh, so I, I think that's something we, many countries in Asia have to, and Africa as well have to think about in this, in this period of history. And certainly we have a lot to learn from the Chinese and other civilizational state models. Uh, We have another comment by Yvonne, actually she's taking us back to uh, some of the reading. She says, I believe that when pursuing the truth, one must know the right questions to ask. Du Bois's three hour meeting in Shanghai is an example of the kinds of questions to ask. Reread the four questions he poses on page 139 after telling the others about his slave master's education and his travels and of the Negro problem. The first question is how far do you think Europe can continue to dominate the world or how far do you envisage a, a world whose spiritual center is Asia and the colored races? Actually, uh, Michelle, do you wanna maybe turn to page 139 and we could read the other three questions?
4: Yeah,
3: so going back to page 139, Du Bois writes, we talked nearly three hours. I plunged in recklessly. I told them of my slave ancestors, of my education and travels, of the Negro problem. Then I turned on them and said, how far do you think Europe can continue to dominate the world? Or how far do you envisage a world whose spiritual center is Asia and the colored races? You have escaped from the domination of Europe politically since the World War, at least in part, but how do you propose to escape from the domination of European capital? How are your working classes progressing? Why is it that you hate Japan more than Europe when you have suffered more from England, France, and Germany than from Japan?
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, the first one is this point about what will be the center of of the world in a lot of ways. The second one is basically about, uh, right, about he's almost kind of predicting neo-colonialism because he's saying you've escaped politically from Europe, but what about economically from European capital? And then the third one is about the working class, which is bringing it back to the Marxian socialism questions. And then the final one also is very interesting about why do you hate Japan more than Europe when you have suffered more from England, France, Germany than from Japan. And uh, as I was saying earlier about why I think this is so relevant for today, because I think within Asia, this divisions between different Asians, this is part of the problem is that people are clinging so much to the kind of just recent history, maybe tensions between India and China or India and Pakistan or so on and you know, the media and so on, everybody's amplifying that and ignoring, basically giving a pass to European colonialism, what the Europeans have done and ignoring the positive history, you know, between these different Asian societies and, and states. So I, I think that was, it's a, it is a very interesting question. And Yvonne is right. I mean, Yvonne always stresses, you have to know which questions to ask. And I think maybe that's why we were saying Du Bois's travelogue is so illuminating because everywhere he travels, he, he, comes up with the right questions to ask. He thinks very carefully about those questions. You know?
1: I think you know, the uh, contemporary relevance of this question, why do you hate uh, Japan more than you hate England or Germany or France, you know, in the conflict between uh, India and China, you know, I mean, what is that about? Over borders? I mean, in the large scheme of things, is that what a few miles here or there? Uh, and uh, I think I would like to see the questions that Du Bois would ask to either uh, a Chinese uh, person in authority or an Indian person in authority, you know, because I don't think anybody can answer that question. Mm -hmm. It does, it's absurd, it's an absurdity. Uh, It makes no sense. Um, I'm certain, you know, there's some some feelings that go back uh, maybe 50 years and they, you know, I can understand India's rightful anger at certain things, but China waged border wars against the Soviet Union, but now Russia and China have found a way to practically uh, to unite on practical matters. Uh, But here you get uh, about uh, uh, 40% of the world's population between the two and they are fighting and threatening uh, and India's going to support the United States in the Straits of Taiwan I mean why uh, we know, of course, that uh, Gandhi would never permit India to be drawn into an alliance with a Western country against an Asian nation. Uh, so it's so I think that question uh, uh, is very important, even today, on you know different countries.
0: Uh, And, you know, the more you look at it and you look at it through this lens, I mean, the more kind of sadly sad and almost silly, it seems, because actually, if you look at the borders themselves, they're all literally drawn by the hands of white men. The India-China border, literal actual name of it is the McMahon line, because McMahon, who was a British Raj official, made a treaty with the Chinese at the time. It's a McMahon line. The border between India and Pakistan, which was the partition border, is called the Radcliffe Line because a British lawyer, Cyril Radcliffe, drew that border. And they've been fighting over, particularly over Kashmir, since the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, which has also been controversial for a long time, is called the Duran Line, Mortimer Duran, another British official who made an agreement with the Afghan government after the Anglo-Afghan war. So, you know, how can you, you know, have these kinds of nationalists Passions and frenzies, which have reached a point of sometimes, uh, you know, absurdity uh, over these uh, borders, and ignore the historical continuity. I mean, of course, there's a reasonable amount you can have over your borders, and there's a reasonable amount of suspicion you may have over recent events. But you have to put it into perspective Mm -hmm. of the relations between Asians and Asians versus the role of Western colonialism in uh, Asia, and certainly in this time with the rise of Asia, you have to understand those points, uh, I think is very important. And I mean, in the West since then has kept a very close eye on these borders and knows how to try to manipulate them, create tensions and uh, and so on.
1: And see, uh, if I could just say one thing, the nation state as a political category is problematic, certainly in Asia, certainly in Africa with 50 some states, because once you go down that path, what is to prevent uh, new ethnic nations within nations from emerging? Uh, the Sikhs, many Sikhs want to partition uh, to have a Sikh nation within India. Um, that's why uh, I think to, to think in civilization terms is, is probably a higher order of thinking and imagination. And, you know, I feel a certain uh, uh, happiness when I hear Xi Jinping, you know, talking about China and India and how Buddhism came to China through India and other things like that. So, yeah.
5: Yeah, that was my, oh, go ahead, Megan. No,
1: go
0: ahead.
5: That was my thought also when reading, reading this part, specific part of Russian America where Du Bois spent so much time analyzing Japan and like talking about Japan's relationship with China, China and Japan, why so much bitterness. And I immediately also thought of today, I feel like the closest thing is not just China and Japan, but China and India. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like Du Bois was emphasizing how much these Asian countries need each other. Um, Not even just historically, the rich traditions they have and the fact that there has been so much cultural exchange, which has made all of the country so great and beautiful in different ways, but also today how much they need each other in the face of Western imperialism and the face of another world war. And I also think, I think it's really significant that Du Bois lists out Gandhi, Tagore, and then lists Japan and China because India, I mean, you could say South Asia, China, and Japan all are connected because of Buddhism, like a huge, cultural tie between Japan and China is Buddhism. Um, Buddhism came from, Buddhism in Japan came from China and then Buddhism in China came from India. Um, And Gandhi to Gore, I feel like there's a lot of spiritual, in some ways the same kind of spiritual, like they say they have the same spiritual tradition and even in Sun Yat-sen the way Sun senator has this really famous essay called Pan-Asianism where he talks about how Japan has chosen the rule of might, essentially the West, has learned the West too fast, too soon, um, rather than understanding how advanced and important Oriental philosophy is. And I feel like in some ways Sun yat is also coming from that same spiritual tradition, Buddhism, um, in some ways much closer to Gandhi than the West and i think that's just really important for today because when you hear xi jinping talk about in some ways i feel like xi jinping is trying to seduce china back i mean seduce india back to china talk about how important these countries need each other china needs india um, just as much as India needs china and i also have a lot of hope for today um and i think the last thing is just that when you look at bandung for example it's so sad because thinking about India today, India during Bandung, India was a huge player and it was only because of India that China even came to Bandung. You know, it was Nehru going to China, having these long conversations with Mao, Zhou, and Lai talking about peace. I know you feel, you know, China feels a certain way about the West, about Taiwan, but that there's an important task at hand at Bandung, which is peace. Um, And Nehru Nehru and India played a huge role in bringing these smaller Asian countries like Burma and Indonesia that are a little suspicious of China together with China at the table to talk about world peace. And so I think just, not just the way, I mean, combining the way Du Bois is talking about new communism coming from Asia and the East and even this tradition of Bandung, I feel like, you know, it makes you really sad to see today, but at the same time, there's a lot of hope with the fact that China, which still has a lot of bitterness towards Japan, has entered an economic agreement with Japan. Seems like Xi Jinping is also trying to emphasize Japan-China relations to a certain degree. Um, So we'll see. Actually, the question I have for you, Doc, is when Du Bois talks about how Japan has learned, you know, Japan's so technologically advanced, there's the there's a fear that a technologically advanced country like Japan will forget an advancement in values or hold on to values and remember that just as much as you need a technological revolution, that more importantly are at the crux is also a revolution in values. Did you, do you feel like some of it, you could kind of apply that same analysis to China today or?
1: Absolutely, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of, um... Michelle's uh, uh, query, you know, when we talked about this, remember we were together and she said, you know, yes, Xi Jinping and his statements, all of that is beautiful. but, But you have a lot of million people in China who are Western in their orientation and they've learned Western values too soon, too well, and have become Western. And that uh, class of people within China don't like Xi Jinping at all. And the West is, uh, and especially the United States, is very aware of these people by name, not just you know that they exist as a class, but by name, because so many of them have been educated in the United States. Definitely, I. Yes, yes, Emily, and that's and of course, India is being ruined by the Western oriented intellectuals in India and the ruination of the Indian University. Now in China, hopefully, and I think it's the case, the universities have not been overrun by Westernized professors and Westernized values. But in India, from what I gather from, you know, from uh, Raju and Nanditha and, and uh, Medina and others, uh, it's a disgrace. It's a shame in some ways uh, that the university and the intelligentsia have turned against the Indian masses.
0: Uh, bringing some more comments on this theme of India, uh, Vincent writes, Uh, Yash Tandon, a Ugandan revolutionary of Indian ancestry, in an essay entitled Gandhi's relevance in contemporary Southern Africa, wrote the following on Gandhi and Nehru, quote, Gandhi was not only insightful, but also one might say prophetic. In his day, however, except for a small coterie of close followers, he was mostly ridiculed for advocating what appeared to be a move backward in history. Even Pandit Nehru, Gandhi's apostle in other ways, and the first prime minister of India had fundamental disagreement with Gandhi on this issue. Uh, quote, it is science and technology, Nehru was fond of saying over and over again, which has made Western countries wealthy and prosperous. And it is only through the growth of technology that India shall become a wealthy and prosperous nation, end quote. Nehru had much faith in modern technology, Gandhi none. Nehru wanted to emulate. The prosperous West. For Gandhi, quote, "God forbid that India should ever take to industrialism after the manner of the West. If an entire nation of three hundred millions took to similar exploitation, it would strip the world bare like locusts." End quote. And uh, Raju writes, that was, "That was Pundit Nehru,
1: not Jawaharlal Nehru."
0: No, it was same, but it's same. It's Pundit. It's the same Nehru. Oh. Pundit is like his, you know, cast or whatever. Full name is Pundit Jawaharlal. Nehru. Yeah, same. Uh, uh, Raju writes, Gandhi did not get a chance to participate in the building of the Indian state, which I think puts deeper meaning on his assassination. When the constitution of India was being formulated, there was an alternative Gandhian constitution formulated by S.N. Agarwal and which received approval by Gandhi. Agarwal said that a study of India's past revealed experiments with monarchy, autocracy, democracy, republicanism, and even anarchy. And it was an insult to manufacture the constitution of India to be a mere mixture of Western constitutions. I think there was not enough time after the struggle for independence to completely break from the colonial state and establish a civilizational state. It was bound to be a long process. And I think these ideas are very important, particularly today as the nature of the Indian state and nation is brought under question. Again, uh, maybe poor bar magnet you want to <laughs> add anything to that, respond to that. I,
4: I was actually thinking that one of the attractions of countries like India for you know a Western style of government is saying, oh, this is where democracy was born and yeah. then it spread. But I feel like democracy, like fascism, has lost its essential meaning in political discourse right now. Because if you ask, what does democracy mean as a system of governing people? Well, Dubai's answer is very simple. It has two parts. One part is that you strive to achieve the broadest measure of justice for all people and minimize human conflict. So when different kinds of people try to coexist together, there will be conflict, so you try and minimize that. So that is the purpose of uh, democratic government on one hand, on on the other hand, there is this deep-rooted uh, uh, realization of a democracy that you know you get the source of your knowledge and wisdom is the people. These are the two things that I think he focuses on in Of the Ruling of Men when he talks about what democracy means, and if you think about what stands for democracy today, it fails on both counts because it, it thrives on maximizing human conflict. It pits people against each other through identity politics. It puts a huge wedge um, where, there should be human, uh, where there should be unity among people. And on the other hand, when you're talking about valuing the wisdom and knowledge that comes from people, from their experiences, it fails miserably too. So now then the question becomes, are we really looking to the West to sort of adopt this kind of a democracy? Mm -hmm. It seems like a place like India, which has this history, a civilizational history of unity and brotherhood. It seems like the answer is something else. I think the people who are looking to the West are looking to adopt this Western lifestyle, which is rich and decadent and it's individualistic. So you don't have to think about the rest of, your, of the people and this idea that the attraction is just democratic ideals is a lie. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. It reminded me of this, yeah.
1: Could you say, what was that text by Du Bois you were referencing?
4: Of the ruling of men from Dark Water. Ah. Hmm.
0: No, it's, uh, well, it's great that you mentioned that definition from because I think that's very helpful for us because, again, this has been the huge problem is how, you know, the word, the use of the word democracy has been so, uh, it's been so abused, really, and so used for uh, the wrong ends. And uh, like you said, I think you're absolutely right that a lot of it is used today to justify being Western, Western lifestyles and so on in the name of democracy. And like we were saying earlier, you can never, you can't discuss, you have to denounce any idea of people's democracy from China or Cuba or so on. That's that's out of the question. All you have is parliamentary Western-style democracy. That's all that's on the table if you're, you know, a supposed legitimate thinker in Western Academy or, or elsewhere.
4: And what Dubois describes about Russia that he saw in uh, 1926 and 36 again, I mean, it achieves this definition of democracy that Du Bois is talking about in Dark Water. It achieves that more fully, even though you don't have this party politics and electoral politics, because it's it's thinking about what people need, what the working classes need, and how does a government provide that to such a huge body of people? So I mean, democracy as a word loses all meaning uh, when you consider that, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was also thinking earlier, we were talking about the relationship between India and China and how at that high point of unity, I mean, everything was centered around peace, you know, respect for other people's systems. I think this is also a very democratic concept Mm -hmm. that centers people because, I mean, like without peace, you can't develop, you can't bring democracy to people, you Mm -hmm. can't help them. And I know Indira Gandhi always used to say, we have promises to keep. You know, that was always part of her, um, like this, the kind of thing she would say in the non-aligned movement, um, we need peace because we have to do right by these people we have to erase the legacy of colonialism. Um, and so this this kind of warmongering, you know, in favor of pettiness, it's really a way it's it's a way of not centering the people because, I mean, that's just that's just, you know, human beings 101 when you ask them what they want, I mean, most people who are not, you know, driven crazy by um, greed they just they want peace they want to be free to live their lives and you know everybody can do what they as they please as long as um people can flourish and you know they can do what they're they're meant to do um yeah
0: bring in some more comments uh uh Um, Jeremiah Kim writes, what Du Bois says about China and Japan is challenging to read as a Korean American, since my instinctive reaction is to reject anything positive said about Japan. But ultimately, Du Bois is showing us a drastically different way of looking at the world, in which Japan cannot be ignored as part of the East. The natural civilizational logic of Asia is for countries like Japan and China to cooperate together for a common purpose of human uplift. It seems that Du Bois was insisting that both China and Japan could make the choice to work towards this future. Another person, uh, Arthur Robinson, says, I do think as well the memory of Japanese war atrocities in China were extremely fresh and shocking in the mind of its citizens at the time. I'd be very curious about the average modern Chinese citizen's view of Britain and America versus Japan, considering the way the west has been hammering on about hong kong there's certainly still deep resentment oh sorry there's certainly still deep resentment for japan in the areas like shanghai where civilian casualties were high
2: does
0: anybody have an answer to that question
1: deep one.
2: Well, I I just think this is really the benefit of the Black perspective on the world. Like you always know what the primary contradiction is. Even if you can't, I mean, it kind of goes back to the Dark Princess, Like, like what geography are you rooted in? How are you seeing things, you know? And you can see the whole world from the Black Belt of America. You're both connected to the world, but you're also connected to industry and, you know, the center of war. And so, I mean, it just gives a kind of, clarity about some of these questions. I even remember we were watching um we were in a restaurant with you doc and we were watching the border crossings uh, oh, or border the border ceremony. the border ceremony between India and Pakistan. And I just remember you were like we were just watching it and my first thought oh this is such a spectacle of you know war and what and you're just like I like the their style, you know, I like the way they're marching. I mean there is something so beautiful about the way both of these people are so similar and I mean, but I couldn't, but I mean, to be able to see that is, um, I mean, I think that's a unique contribution of the black radical tradition.
1: Maybe, I don't know, <laughs> I don't remember that quite. You were, say, you were
0: saying it was like the HBCU uh, marching band. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah. that's true. There is that tendency, very soulful, the soulfulness. Yeah. You know, right. The Indians, you know, um, but yeah, yeah. But see this, this question, I think every Asian society which is now producing uh, these westernized elites and this is a big question for the state, you know? Yeah, every, we all need educated, technologically gifted people, you know? The world is, uh, production is going to be Dominated by computers and robots and uh, artificial intelligence and other things. I mean, you know, this is the world we're living in. But do you have to give everything about yourself up, literally? Do you have to become white uh, to access this? That's and that's what is so uh, disturbing to me, just looking from the outside. Uh, and I was made more acutely aware of this, you know, by uh, Emily and um, and Michelle, especially Michelle, who says, yeah, but I got questions. Here's, Gigi Ping, I'm down. I like it, Let's her talking. But hey, you know, that's not the whole story. Uh, you got a whole lot of uh, Trojan horses or traders within the ranks who are just waiting for the right opportunity, uh, to uh, throw a wrench in the gears of the, of the whole thing. This is a big problem. I don't I, I just don't know how to answer it. Because these are viruses of neocolonialism. You know, uh, even if you have your own uh, capitalists, but then you have the values that uh, compromise the society's independence as a culture, as a civilization.
3: Yeah, this is, this is why I've been thinking about, you know, the role of the Asian American in this time very much, and especially what it means that we are anchored in America, we look to the black radical tradition for ideological clarity, because um, sometimes it seems that the Asian elite are better at being Western than even the Asian Americans are, you know, they were the most luxurious brands, it's almost um you know, they mimic Western ways in in the most extreme sense. And it's almost, you know, unbelievable or even caricature-ish. Meanwhile, you know, I think we're in a historic moment when a lot of Asian Americans are ready to look beyond what the West has to offer or, you know, give up or look beyond some of the spoils of whiteness to which, you know, they have been so yoked in previous decades. And yeah, throughout this conversation, especially after what Megna and Doc you had just said about the Black Belt and kind of the thought that is furnished in Dark Princess like it makes me think a lot about yeah just just what like what the role of America is is in all of this and yeah coming back to the Asian American I think the responsibility will be to furnish this very clear understanding of the contradictions of empire Mm -hmm. uh, you know the synthesis of war, um, war industry, race, you know, class struggle, which you can really see through the eyes of like the black belt. Um, Yeah, and then it also makes me you know, something that's been on my mind since you're framing at the beginning of preschool doc was this question of Philadelphia and the dictatorship of the proletariat and genuine democracy and how a civilizational state can be made and it's a it's too much for me to provide a coherent, you know, Formulation toward right now, but yeah, I've been thinking about Philadelphia a lot and how you know we are rooted in Philadelphia. And for someone like me, so much of my own ideological development has only been made possible by being in the city where you can see all of these different forces, where you can see the black worker, you can see, um, yeah, you can see something so clear in the city here. yeah, and you know how how so many people just get it so wrong in a city like Philadelphia, where they think that um, progressivism means you know defund the police or um, ACAB or defend the vote or anti-Trump. But yeah, I I want to better understand. It's also something I want to ask you guys, like how this how the conditions for democracy can be made in a city like Philadelphia or in America in this time?
1: You know, interestingly uh, for me, well, first of all, if you listen to the anti-Chinese diatribes coming out now, especially now, but also out of the Trump administration, you know, it's not just that they're opposing the Chinese nation, they're opposing the Chinese civilization and they see it as a threat to Western or white civilization. That's and they're, and they're prepared to defend Western or white civilization uh, with nuclear weapons. And that's not just my talk. That's what they, they're saying. Um, I think that the most important development World historic development for the freedom of the American people as a whole and Black people in particular would be the consolidation and rise of Asia. I don't think there's any question I think as a as an African-American I feel a stake in the progressive rise of Asia and that hopefully China can consolidate this path that it's on um, I find that someone you know, I think it was Johan that mentioned, you know, cultural nationalism, you know, Africa for the Africans Asians, Asia for the Asiatics, Europe for the European, I mean that type of bifurcation and fragmentation of progressive humanity uh, is self defeating. In fact, it stabs black people in the back. Uh, We have a stake, and that's what Du Bois was saying. Probably that's why he's not popular among cultural nationalists. And well, we could throw social Democrats, Trotskyites, liberals, and the whole shebang in there. Uh, Certainly the ruling class, because he says that African Americans have a stake in the progressive consolidation of uh, Asia. And the thing that, Ticks me off a lot about people like Modi is that they come over here and act like black people don't exist, that um, Howard Thurman and uh, W.E.P. Du Bois and Martin Luther King uh, were never intimately tied to India's independence and our own freedom. And you're going to just stand up there and act like white people and then. Excuse me for saying this. Even become a minstrel on the stage of history to accommodate white people. way, we call them Uncle Toms. Uh, you know, saying to the white world, "Oh, I'm not a threat to you. I will join with you against other Asians." Uh, you know, Gandhi is turning over in his grave, of course, as is Indira Gandhi and Nehru and them, but. You see what I'm saying? Uh, and, and so it, it divides African-Americans from Indians in America or South Asians in America. Uh, the same thing as, you, as you're saying, I mean, um, Du Bois is saying to, with China, we have a stake. As China rises, our potential rises, you know? But that goes for the whole American working class. Communism in China benefits the working class rather than the opposite. But then you have all of these white Chinese or white acting Chinese who are minstrels, who mislead and misguide people's perception of China. You would think that China is a white nation ruled by a dictator who was against the Chinese people. But you know, so I we ha- we agree with you, we've got to work that out. We have to work that out and differentiate between uh, the pro-West, pro-white civilization Asians and the Asians who are trying to build a future uh, that is not based upon Western hegemony. Um, I have to saying
6: something that's off topic but uh, I keep thinking about Africa in this time, and it's still compromised. And yeah, I think that is closer to in connection the way I see, the way I'm thinking about it with India yes. and why India is going, you know, in the direction it is. Mm-hmm. But Africa is still compromised and it's that's just repeating so
1: in my head and so just Edited. like India all of the languages Africa has all of these languages more languages than India does the population South Asia the populations of Africa and South Asia are very similar the diversity and the other thing is even more than an in South Asia, the nation state is an obstacle to progress on the African continent. You know, the African Union and all that notwithstanding, the nation state, especially these many states and this further partitioning of the Sudan, of Ethiopia, and we can go on and on and on. That's why the multi-civilizational state has to be envision or imagine for the African continent? Uh, yeah. i sorry to have interrupted you, Sarah. I just wanted to. Right. Oh, go ahead, sir.
6: No, I guess I do have something more to say, but it was just that, I guess that question is coming up in my head because it might be similar to what you're pointing out with Michelle, like, okay, Xi Jinping, you know, and that kind of like, if China is going to be, um, you know, out capitaling capital, like Du Bois was already writing about. um, Well, what does that mean? And what direction that people, you know, what is that? Where is that going? Um, It is a good thing to think about that connection between India and China. Um, But without Africa, there, it's still like, you still have submerged um people that imperialism is still having a hand. Um
1: right. No, you're right. You're right, sir A submerged continent, yes.
0: All right. Uh some more comments. First, uh Nanta corrected something I said earlier about pundit Nehru. That pundit is not his family or cast name but an honorific title he received.
6: Yeah it's a teacher
0: As a teacher, yeah. yeah. I got confused because it is some people's family names. But uh, anyway, Jeremiah has a comment about democracy. He writes, uh, Jeremiah Kim writes, Our discussion on democracy continues to be relevant given that Time Magazine just published a long celebratory article about how labor, big business, Silicon Valley, and the establishment left formed a concrete alliance to protect, quote, protect American democracy in the last election. It is described as a quote well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions change rules and laws steer media coverage and control the flow of information they were not rigging the election they were fortifying it end quote and that quote is from uh, time magazine i think one of their recent uh articles and it's very interesting because one, I mean, free school has been kind of saying
1: oh, thank you, that. surprise, surprise. I'm <laughs> <Go laughs> sorry, Joe.
0: Man. I'm also thinking back to uh, how uh, uh, Du Bois talks about San Francisco as Saint Francis the poor. Yeah. In some ways, it still yeah. still is accurate. I mean, this gender, it has a super elite, well-to-do managerial class, but it's still has this uh, immense poverty, gentrification, extreme cost of living. And interestingly, like you were saying with Modi or other kind of reactionary leaders, that's usually where they go when they visit the US. They go, as, they go to Washington, but then they also go over to Silicon Valley, meet with the heads of Facebook, Google, all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, they're involved in all kinds of nefarious things undermining democracy all around the world and now also undermining any semblance of democracy and the power of the working class here at home. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Jeremiah for raising that. I would definitely- I,
1: I, that, that Time Magazine, or I haven't finished, I can't finish it. You know, it's like me saying, I told you. I mean, that's what we were saying, a cabal. The regime had united. And are still united even in the conditions of a civil war or something close to a civil war in this country. I mean you know what sides of what's you know what's what and, and it's divided but this that article said it all and I would I would throw in there uh, and this is uh probably will get me you know I don't think thrown off of off of zoom throw me off of zoom not but look the black lives that wasn't a black that wasn't a civil rights movement at all that was an organization from above a movement from above uh which was more like a color revolution or a regime change which ended appropriately a month before the election not to clutter the people's minds with black lives matter when you have to vote now I mean, has anybody heard anything about the 1619 project lately? I mean, this is, you can see it's all engineered. And that's what they said in that article. And they didn't tell it all in there, of course, you know. Right, right, right. Truth is
0: at least coming out. You know,
6: i we were just talking about that, you know, before we started recording and stuff, and it's still. my head as to like how did time magazine write this article and it's like cool for people to read really casually and um that's why the political education ideological you know uh education is important and i think that also kind of goes back to what we were talking about in um terms of the like what i saying like the it might be the, the, the dictatorship of the people and how like values can shift from West oriented from, you know, Europe to humanity into the future.
1: Yeah, well, you know, that article, the The message in that article is the means justify the ends. Even if we use undemocratic, autocratic, uh, very sneaky and bad faith means, lying means, you know, undemocratic means. We save democracy. Uh, uh-uh. uh. It don't happen that way. You have institutionalized autocracy, and it's coming through the liberals. You know, the identity politicians, et cetera.
6: But like, I'm not okay with that. I'm not at all okay with that. And how is it possible that people can be okay with that? I don't like to be
1: lied to straight, look me in my face.
6: Exactly. I don't like it. Nobody should actually, that's disrespectful. That's disrespectful.
1: Absolutely. And but. Oh God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I mean, it's just like the same. I just just took the attitude. I mean, I'm getting my blood pressure down. I said, (laughs) I just chill for a while. Y'all handle it since, you know, you so happy that you <laughs> got that. Yeah, but no.
6: No, but, no, but there's something <laughs> to that though. You know, the extent in which that people have been so disrespected, you know, or have been objectified or thingified or not cared about, not heard about. I mean, that's why the um, this quote unquote, storming of the Capitol was as significant as it is because there is an opinion of people that people have, you know, in different parts of the country. Right. And last week when we were talking about, you know, this um, education of the people, one, and how like the communist state, communist uh, in you know, Soviet Union, how it functioned, why that was important to know. And um, yeah, cause I was looking at that video of an interview of one of the guys who spoke at the storming. Or, like, at the little protest at the Capitol, he was the um uh, I forgot it was the group, it wasn't a um, brothers, something brothers. I thought it was Proud Boys, it wasn't a Proud Boys, but it was like the the Boogaloo, yeah, the Boogaloo,
1: boogaloo, yeah, (laughs) um, (laughs)
6: Boogaloo
1: down Broadway, yeah,
6: right. And the interview, the (laughs) purpose of the interview was to figure out the similarities that he had with this boogaloo person and um I forgot the name of him but he did remind me of like uh some people that I know he seems familiar he wasn't you know you know crazy
0: oh are you yeah, talking, like, are you talking t- about the Jimmy Dore interview with the yeah. white, white guy from like Michigan or something
1: yep I sure I just watched that. that I saw that yep yeah. He was in
0: the Boogaloo. Is he the Boogaloo yeah, Michigan chapter, Boogaloo Boys?
6: And he was saying how he was like kinda gay or something, but he was like I'm down with people. I'm
1: gay. Yeah, he said, I'm not the most masculine person. He said, I'm not
0: the well, they, they the Jimmy Dore said, like, we've heard like boogaloo boys are very anti gay, anti black. And he's like, well, we work with Black Lives Matter in Michigan. Secondly, I'm not the most straight man myself.
6: <laughs> and additionally, he was saying how he was bodyguarding for Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, talking about some alliance, right? You're on both sides, too.
0: Right, right. I mean, yeah, I saw that. I mean, you know, uh, first of all, the the media has tried to create this kind of like boogeyman out of the Boogaloo boys of like they're these fascist, scary, fanatic, but then you see this guy, he just seems like a normal like, you know, young everyday
6: person. Yeah.
0: He's talking about, you know, you could see it's kind of raw. It's a very raw ideologically, but you know, they're trying to, you know, it seems like they're trying to be on the right side. They're talking about we're anti-racist, anti-police brutality, anti-war, anti-imperialist. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely being twisted. And, and the, even the name, it's just, he was saying in the interview that the name is from, you know, because part of this, like, particularly white youth culture is this irony or whatever. So the name is from some, like, 80s movie, Breaking 2, or Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. I don't know if Doc has seen it. I haven't
1: seen it. I haven't seen that, but I do know no, there was a very no. famous song back in the day called, part of the line was Boogaloo Down Broadway. Oh, and the Boogaloo was a very popular dance move. Right, right. I'm gonna do the Boogaloo. And if you listen to certain James Brown's things, uh, I can Boogaloo. He'll say that with the quickness. Right, Wait,
6: but I was only bringing that up because of that, um, the idea of discussion. And I didn't agree with everything that the dude was saying, because he was talking about, oh yeah, we want anarchy, it's all good. And I was like, um, no, but, you know, it's the fact of being open to ideas. And um, they were discussing about what they agreed with, and I thought that was pretty good.
0: Right, right. I mean, it's like we've been saying, uh, you know, we're seeing things kind of in their development like we don't know exactly what's coming out but we can see like okay people the masses at large are grappling with these problems mass unemployment drugs endless wars uh, immense feeling of disempowerment in terms of government and democracy so you're seeing I think all kinds of reactions to it all kinds of just one of those reactions is this boogaloo boys. I mean, they're, they're out in these rural or smaller towns. They have gun culture. They're identifying more as libertarians, I guess, but they're against the excesses of the state. Um, I mean, there are many others. I mean, you, you, some, some section of Black Lives Matter, the more grassroots section, you could see different people who've been protesting against police brutality or Or, I mean, so many different issues you just see. I mean, but like we say a lot, the main issue problem is this ideological confusion, the need for ideological clarity. So uh, I think what a lot of these people need to do is listen to what we're saying, read Russia and America, try to understand the depth of the crisis and, and not just the US but globally and the possibilities that are being presented Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, but it's totally wrong for the media to try to call people fascist, denounce them because they're trying to stop any kind of unity from forming. And they're trying to, they're trying to basically weaponize a certain part of the population against another part of the population. So that this managerial elite in Silicon Valley and Washington and elsewhere can, you know, not feel their power threatened at all.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of something you were saying earlier, Johanna, just about how denouncing is such a big Mm. part of American politics, denounce (laughs) Farrakhan, you know, denounce this, or you can't get, you know, you can't get a position in Congress. And, you know, it's just, it's this form of policing that has nothing to do with substance or values. I mean, everything is so superficial. You just have to make a statement and suddenly you're in with this, you know, cabal, but um,
6: yeah. But also another thing that I was noticed is when there is a lack of ideological clarity. Um, you know, there is a, dis- there's a disconnection between the revolutionary traditions of Louis Farrakhan, for instance, and the people. You know, a lack of understanding of what happened and what is going on. So that that's, will create another crisis or like is, you know, a part of creating said crisis.
4: wanted to make a comment on one example of why the Black Lives Matter movement fails to inspire and it's related to what Meghna was saying about denouncing so this whole move that we need to topple statues right okay. remove them just get rid of them so people don't know uh, but then you read in the first chapter of Russia America I think it was where he talks about how the Russians kept the statues of Catherine the Great and Alexander the Third and instead chose to put a plaque there which said, this is the cause of all our troubles. <laughs> so that way, you know, in the latter case, you have the history in front of you. And you you can learn from both good and bad aspects of of what, what the history is. But this toppling statues and removing them from the sight of people is just brushing it under the carpet, I think. Um, I'd rather like look at one of these statues with a plaque that says what they have done in history, what they've stood for. And that would add to my understanding of the world much better than this reactionary denouncing of people and just getting rid of things and destroying rather than creating. Yeah. Yes.
1: You know, When you look at what is called the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, first of all, to call what happened over the summer a mass rebellion, a mass uprising, no, it wasn't. It was not that. And I don't care how many thousands of people were in the street, you have to ask who were these people? You know, a Black Lives Matter movement that doesn't have that many Black people in it? You know, I, I'm from Philadelphia. Uh, I'll say it over and over again. I I can't remember when I was not in some demonstration against police brutality. I don't remember. I don't remember any of these marches being majority white until this summer. And all of these people uh, in a lockdown. So it means that social media and the corporate media had to foment something. It was a, a, a from above movement. And we cannot separate the participants in those movements from the gentrification thing that's going on. And that's what why cancel culture is so important because it is a way of protecting the elites from the critique of the non-elites. I can cancel you, I don't have to hear you. And the thing, the thing that's so kind of disturbing is how, and I put quotes, I always have to put quotes, the left is so um, guided by the politics of the elites the, how would you call them, the administrative bureaucratic uh, 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 intellectual elites, and how much of the left willingly targets their discourses to university educated, primarily white people, even when they call themselves black. It's like they're consciously talking to university educated uh, white people and some blacks but this cosmopolitan elite. While at the same time claiming that the white working class are bankrupt and have in the course of making that claim bypassed the black working class. You see what I'm saying? I I mean, we're in a conundrum, Uh, we're in a deep conundrum, I think, and uh, yeah, it it requires a lot of strength to deal with the uh, machinations and, uh, and BS and how much control the elite has over thinking in this society.
3: Yeah, Doug, I think it goes back to what you had brought up earlier about the role of the state and how the genuine progressive has to strive to understand the state and its, and its ensuing machinations like very, very closely because I've also been thinking about Black Lives Matter in Philadelphia in 2020 in particular because it was a city that even got national attention, you know, in how for how prolific its protest culture was. Um, yeah, for the Black Lives Matter movement, for the anti-Trump movement, et cetera. But I've been trying to like make sense of how, you know, like what and how so many people missed what was really happening in the city and what the real concerns of the black community are. And I think like, like you said, I think one of the biggest problem with the Black Lives Matter protesters, for example, is that Even the solutions that they propose, which might be well-meaning, like, um, let's say, more opportunity, like supporting Black business, community fridges, and affordable housing, like, they paper over this belief in the dictatorship of the proletariat or an involvement in making that a reality where the Black community, through its own uplift, can determine the means um, yeah, the means of their own community, like, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I can't quite put it into words yet, but it's it's a very, very different way of like, you know, it's not just pitting the community or seeing them as victims, but rather conferring to this great legacy that the community itself has, especially in, in a city like Philadelphia. Um, yeah, yeah, which which if restored could have great implications for the city and the country.
0: again, this point about ideological control is very important. Um, Nabil is sharing some stuff about some articles about Boogaloo Boys and extremism from NPR and some public radio stations. I'm not sure exactly what they say, but but we'll look at them afterwards. But I would just say that I mean, I think even with this, we have to look at it all with a grain of salt. I mean, Doc, would you agree the portrayal of some of these, these groups and uh, certainly NPRs and how to have a good record, go ahead.
1: It's, it's, to me, it's very painful. You know, I, I hear exactly what Michelle is saying. What does it mean to have a movement for social change where that movement does not struggle to change the relationships of power? You know, uh, you want change, but it's all right that Comcast and the University of Pennsylvania and the various banks and the politicians that serve them remain in power. We feel very comfortable going and begging you, please master, uh, give me some crumbs off the table. A real social movement at this time must be a movement for power, or at least a movement that challenges the institutions of power. That's why I find it a little bit difficult, I mean, very difficult, to be just out and out attacking the attackers on the Congress on January 6th. I know it was a mixed bag. There were probably agent provocateurs and other things in there. But the question is, and I say this to Black folk all the time, they say, oh, they were white supremacists and yada, yada, yada. I said, well, one thing we know for certain they weren't attacking Black people. When they went in there, the people whose names they called out, it wasn't Maxine Waters, it wasn't um, um, any Black congressman or woman or, or senator. They called out the names of powerful white men and women. So why would you see this as a threat and why do they become white supremacists? By whose definition? I mean, this is um, this is all out of uh, order, and the people have not yet found their voice. Voices, they have not yet found it, and um, uh, the ruling class are taking advantage of the situation to impose a real harsh repressive dictatorship, with the support and assistance of the left. Mm. Right.
0: Well, that's it for comments right now. But uh, no, I, I, it's an important point about how the left is playing this allied role to the ruling class, trying to be the left hand of the ruling class Yes, yes. A lot of ways to paraphrase
1: Stalin. But. Uh, in the name of democracy. Right, in the name of democracy. See, that's when it gets really tricky. Right, right. Because everybody wants democracy, mm-hmm. just like everybody wants freedom.
0: Right, racial equality or equity. Oh, yeah, we all
1: want that. Yeah, or as or they call it equity. today, equity, <laughs> racial equity. You know what I'm saying? We all want these things. These are the highest values we can strive for but what is the context and whose democracy and whose definition? These are very important things. I don't find the the concept democracy appealing at all, especially coming out of the mouths of oligarchs and the military and the CIA. So, well, no, we're not just listening to the CIA and Homeland Security. No, we're listening to AOC. Right. Oh boy now are you convinced that there's a big difference between the former and the latter there might be a, a deeper connection than you're aware of and uh, these nebulous phrases and slogans defund the police now where did that come i remember when i first heard it i, I didn't what Who can, well, some academic. It's a nebulous, meaningless phrase that can be put together where we're fighting for democracy and racial equity and defund the police. And then on top of that, a movement that is not organic from the people who suffer, but comes from an elite who says this is what the movement is. And then I'm like Serafina, you know, uh, I mean, you can lie to me, but don't look me in the face and lie and tell me that, oh yeah, this is, you should, you should accept this or else I'm gonna cancel you. <laughs> yeah, accept the big lie or the threat of cancellation is held over your head. Right, right,
2: right. Yeah, or I was just, what came to mind was racial capitalism. I mean, oh boy. What does that mean when Du Bois has literally written about you know capitalism and civilization and humanity, it's just so meaningless, um, just right. all the host of BS. Uh,
0: that's making a big comeback, racial capitalism. I think there was some big article in Boston Review recently about some anniversary of Cedric Robinson's Black Marxism and you know, how important this racial capitalism thesis is for understanding the Trump movement, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, somebody I saw on Facebook, I don't know if it's true, I was gonna ask you, Doc, actually. Somebody was saying that that book was actually funded by the Ford Foundation and a lot of Cedric Robinson's research.
1: I have no idea. okay, all right. I don't know.
0: Really. But regardless, I mean, it's been promoted a lot in academia and-
1: Right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and
0: it's very trendy in activist, activist circles. Like that's supposed to be the, that's becoming the most like accepted or mainstream black left kind of take is like, okay, I'm, I'm talking about racial capitalism or some people add patriarchal racial capitalism.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: I'm trying to, I'm trying to, somehow squeeze in some remnant of Marxism with identity politics,
1: yeah.
0: and try to give it a black face, and use it to basically again, uh, promote whatever narrative is convenient right now to the liberals and the, the ruling class at the end of the day. So yeah, I mean it's something we've talked about, but yeah, definitely. Well,
1: isn't it interesting that the billionaire class, Bezos and uh, and all the rest are funding research institutes that study racial capitalism.
0: Right, right, right,
1: right. I mean, oh, now I know that all systems have the seeds of their own destruction, you know, based on their contradiction, but I've never heard the ruling class and certainly those at the pinnacle of the ruling class in any system of funding research about how to bring them down. <laughs> so obviously, the racial capitalist slogan is not about changing the power relationships. And I agree, agree with Purba. you know, okay, let me tear down every statue of every racist in the United States, you know, uh, and so on. What has fundamentally changed politically or ideologically? The same people are in charge. And oh, by the way, you know, that Times, that Time Magazine article indicated that had Trump been reelected, they were prepared to unleash Black Lives Matter in rioting in the cities. Well, I think we knew that already. You know, it's. Come on, who is uh, engineering all of this? And that's what we have to know at every, you know, Yvonne talks about ask the right questions. One of the questions you always, who's behind this and whose interest is it serving?
0: Right, that is the big question. Uh, that is the big question. So, yeah, we're, no more comments at the, right now. We're heading towards one
1: thirty. so should we? As they say, it's time to eat. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what Raju would say.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, most people's bodies might be saying right now.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, I think we covered a lot of ground today. And uh, yeah, the reading was excellent, and uh, I, I certainly learned a lot. So, thanks. so
1: John, next week, are we going to continue? Yeah, I think so. I
0: mean, uh, you know, barring we always have to give the disclaimer, barring any important political developments, yeah. we will be planned to continue on to chapter five. Uh, I will send the exact page numbers via email and Facebook, but we've basically realized that reading about 25 pages at a time is a yeah, good you know, amount for each session so we'll plan to read the first roughly the first 25 pages of chapter five which i think is about uh roosevelt and the politics in the u.s uh during this 1930s and 40s and uh we'll be interested to see how du bois is going to discuss that after this great discussion of asia and, and russia yeah on.
1: so could i make a shout out to jeremiah kim sure and ask him if he would write a critique review of that time magazine article fleshing it out sure <laughs> i sure. think he's uniquely qualified to bring it down <laughs> right. to expose what it's all about
0: all right. Well, Jeremiah, heard, you heard it here. We'll announce next week if he's taking off the task or not. I, I think he's with his family right now. He uh, can
1: text me. He knows how to get in touch. <laughs>
0: but we will make a formal announcement next week. Okay, okay. Sounds good. So, yeah, well, thanks for all the people on the live stream, all the participants. Appreciate you joining. Great to have you for the first time.
1: Yeah, man.
0: And, uh, from thanks, all the and uh thanks to everybody who was who watched and commented and we'll see you next week same time same place
3: thanks